guys, the most ridiculous decision I made in my life was asking Jeremy Vaney to guest on my show. The guy just wouldn't shut up. For over three hours he talked about losing his virginity, about the secret predatory sexual perversions of prominent alien abduction researchers, about the uncontrollable vibrations that sprout out of his ass, and the worst of all, very intricate, deep, philosophical, insightful Full, very interesting and educational stuff. I learned a lot today, but I can't market that shit. Nobody cares about smart stuff. Oh, I should have asked him about his ass a bit more. Well, nobody's gonna listen to this episode anyway. It's far too long, and Jeremy Vaney hasn't been relevant in over a decade. Nobody cares anymore about his work in exposing the dark, seedy underbelly of hypnosis and alien abduction research. All of those candles, those are a thing of the past. Nobody's gonna bring those up anymore. Oh, I got a notification from YouTube. Wow, a new video from Erica Lukes. Oh, who are the guests? Ah, Jack Brewer, and... Uh, oh. Okay. I'm in way over my head. Okay, so we're live now, <laughs> and uh, today with me is, uh, do you call yourself an experiencer? Um, or a, sure. Or, or a former alien abductee. Yeah, a reformed alien abductee, now an experiencer. <laughs> and I, I do say uh, reformed and a former alien abductee because you are not of the ETH hypothesis, as it's well known. That's correct. Mm-hmm. So uh, I actually Googled your name a few times and it comes up alien abductee, Jeremy Vaney. Well, I mean, you know, it should because I, I used to call myself that quite a bit in the past and people, it doesn't matter what you call yourself, people are going to call you that on shows and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, ultimately it doesn't matter. When you say alien abductee, at least we all know the architecture of, of what we're talking about, even if we don't agree that the words alien or abductee apply to this anymore. I mean, oh, yeah. And uh, if you're now a reformed experiencer, if somebody refers to you as an alien abductee, is that kind of dead naming and appropriation, maybe? No, I mean, I honestly, I don't I don't give a shit. It's fine. <laughs> well, th that's why I have you uh, on the show. You're the biggest name I've had uh, since now. <laughs> Till now, sorry. So um, Jeremy Vaney here, for those who do not know, is the mastermind behind uh, Paratopia podcast, which was a thing like a decade ago and then faded into obscurity <laughs> until now. <laughs> sort of, although its effects uh, certainly lingered, you know, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Well, its effects are still now lingering. And, and I think its effects are going to be um, reminded of now because uh, two days ago, 
there on uh, Erica Luke's show, there was uh, Jack Brewer and Emma Woods, and you were front and center in the Emma Woods uh, situation when it broke out. Yeah. Yeah. They, they even mentioned you a, a few times, Emma Woods said uh, very nice things about you and your writing. Oh, well, as, as well she should. She certainly has <laughs> great taste. Thank you, Emma. Yeah. Thank you, Emma. Also, um, like most of my uh, listeners probably don't know who you are. <laughs> Sorry about that. What? And probably, I'm the probably biggest don't... star you've had on this show. What are you talking about? <laughs> they probably don't know what we're talking about. So Jeremy Vaney here is an alien abductee. You also wrote for UFO Magazine, if I'm correct? Yes. Okay. What else uh, were you writing for back in the day? What else was I writing for? Uh, mm-hmm. I, well, I mean, back then I, I was writing promos for Nickelodeon. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, w- w- what were you known for in the UFO circles a- apart from you, UFO magazine and Peritopia? Well, not really, I guess, writing so much. But back then when I was doing UFO magazine originally, um, mm-hmm. I had written a book called I Know Why the Aliens Don't Land. Hey, maybe that's why people call me an alien abductee. Um, <laughs> and... I actually brought it to UFO magazine for a review and they were like, Hey, you're a decent writer. Instead of us reviewing it, why don't you come be a columnist? And I was like, Oh, great. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'd written that book. I'd done that column. And then I did um, a documentary on me because that's what narcissists do. Oh yeah. uh, (laughs) No one's watching an alien abductees story. Um, And that was, that was it for, for a while. Uh, But then I sort of, what happened? Oh, right. So Bill Burns and Nancy Burns, who were the editors at UFO Magazine, and I uh, slapped together with um, a conglomerate of experiencers, um, the Culture of Contact Conference in New York. And um, I ended up, uh, w- ironically enough, you know, our like our big star was Bud Hopkins. <laughs> And, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I wasn't always anti-hypnosis or Bud Hopkins or David Jacobs. Um, people forget that. Like, you know, I was a fanboy too until I wasn't. Uh, but Uh so I had set up on coast to coast AM with George Norrie. Uh, they asked me to set up a night for them where I would come on and talk about culture contact and get Bud Hopkins and someone else else it may have either been steve bassett it probably was steve bassett um but anyway it was like a night of of guests uh that i set up for them right including me and then when it came my turn to talk um essentially i got kicked off the show let's just cut to the chase (laughs) like it went horribly and i got kicked off the show and i didn't realize it until i realized like they can't hear me i'm like trying to chime in like i was supposed to be on and, and like talking with Bud Hopkins, with George Norrie, and I realized they're not hearing me. And so I, the producer just said, yeah, you've uh, been, you're gone kind of thing. <laughs> like you're done. So essentially you fell so far uh, from grace that now you're appearing on the show of a Boston dude that doesn't have any listenership. Well, no. Yeah. I mean, I would rather do that, frankly. So, I mean, my response to that was to say, I can do this better than George Norrie. This is garbage. So I'm going to do my own show. And that's why I started doing Culture of Contact. Um, And then podcasting snowballed from there. And I ended up doing 8 million podcasts. 
So mm, that's that's yeah. the that's the long short story of it. And I need to tell you, it, can, can I just tell you if you ever go on yeah. Coast to Coast AM, uh, here's a little pro tip for you. Don't laugh when the host says, after you tell your UFO story of what is clearly an object with windows in the sky, could it have been angelic? When he says that to you, don't go, what? No. Because that's what's going to get you kicked off the show. Oh, man. Well, I am i don't plan on going to Coast to Coast. I was on Where Did the Road Go a few days ago. It's going to be next week. Nice. I rather prefer that. Yeah. I will be on there sooner than later. Oh, man. I think I mentioned you in the Patreon segment. We were talking about the validity of hypnosis. RPJ was on as well. Who's RPJ? Oh, Red, Red Pill Junkie. Junkie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. So um, how I got to you, uh, you don't even know this. So a few months ago, I read Bud Hopkins' book, Missing Time. I read it when I was a kid. You know, that's very nice reading material for a child. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Now, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with the Manhattan abduction of Linda Cortile. Um, and I have here with me a children's book about alien abduction. It has only 40 pages, like all children's books. And it has a whole chapter on Linda Cortile. Um, yeah. So uh, you can uh, guess how pissed I was when I discovered that nobody is podcasting about this case why it's so miraculous it has so many witnesses blah blah, blah. and then i find out that it is all kind of bullshit if I, if i'm allowed to say that yeah it's hot garbage oh yeah so yeah I, it is, it's disappointing to me too i mean this is the thing like <laughs> when you come out and destroy hypnosis <laughs> which should have been done a long time ago uh people want to put you in this basket of like a debunker or whatever. It's like, no, I actually much like Bill Cosby. It's like, I, I appreciated the act until I realized what he was. And now I cannot go back and listen to those records again. You know, like this is a natural human response to discovering predatory behavior or con artists or whatever. Mm -hmm. I, I don't understand these people who are so resistant who claim to be searching for truth. I, I mean, I get that we like these books and we think these cases are it, but it's actually freeing to me to see that that's not it because then we get to sort of start over again and go, okay, we have this wrong. What is it? Yeah. So uh, when I was reading Bud Hopkins book, Missing Time, I thought, okay, let me see what he was like when he first started before the intruders thing. And then his ego kind of blew up. So, um, I read the book and I liked, liked the transcripts of the witnesses until Bud would start with his shenanigans. So there's this lady who had, as a child, a miraculous uh, encounter with the aliens during her abduction where she was talking with the elder alien about animals and plants and whatnot. That's, that resonates with me because I'm a biologist. And then when she was a teenager, she was abducted again and they threw a party for her to celebrate like she helped them uh, achieve some kind of scientific discovery, whatnot. And then Bud says, Oh, that's a false memory implanted by the grays. Right. Um, I, I was getting into Raymond Fowler's work and I really love the Betty Andreessen stuff. Um, uh -huh. Regardless of hypnosis is bullshit or not. Like I, I don't perceive it as 
<laughs> at face value real, you know, I perceive it as an artistic expression, a psychedelic thing. Um, we, we can go into that, but I, I really like the Raymond Fowler stuff. So when I was reading Bud Hawkins' book, he did mention Betty Andresen. He did mention everything about her except for the Phoenix bird situation. Uh-huh. And I'm like, what the fuck is happening here? He is only cherry, cherry picking the details which fit his own narrative, but everything else is just false memories implanted by the greys. Right. Well, when I went on, uh, when, I, when I had him on Culture of Contact, I actually interviewed Bud Hawkins for the Culture of Contact podcast. He admitted on that show, well, uh, essentially that he, any of the stuff that's um, outside the bounds of little gray either malevolent or just uncaring uh, doctors, anything that's beyond that, um, he edits as an outlier. That That's outlier data. So this is where, you know, Jeff and I talked on Paratopia about the cookie cutter alien abduction experience. And that's what we mean. We mean that these, not just him, David Jacobs, and go down the list, and probably on the positive side too, with the Barbara Lambs and the whoever's. Um, they, I think Mac is more positive as well. Mac too, but I don't know that he edited anything. I think he just interpreted what he heard, you know, and Jake and these guys would take them out of their books. They wouldn't even put that stuff in their books. I I heard uh, tales that Mac, if somebody went into Jesus stuff like Betty Andreessen did, you know, but if he had people like that, he would say, oh, we're not going to go there. Oh, really? Well, I I don't know. That's beyond my pay grade. I don't know that. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I was kind of pissed uh, at this notion that a phoenix bird uh, erupting in flames is an Im- uh, implanted false memory by the greys. But, you know, the butt probing is certainly not. That, that's a totally real thing. And he compiles all of these people and even uh, like somebody, a shop owner or some a friend of a friend, you know, it's always somebody who's related to Bud in some way. Um he wrote in the book of all of these witnesses who have uh, had secret abductions and he's uncovering thousands of people, but all of these people are linked to him. He is the common denominator, you know? Yeah. So if you want to do comparative studies, like how are all of these archetypal imageries popping up in all of these witnesses? Well, look at who is the common denominator and it's always him. Well, and also look at what happened to him as a child, which is he had polio and he was deathly afraid of doctors uh, because they would, you know, back when he was a kid and you had polio, like, I don't know what they would do to you, like electroshock therapy or something, you know, something involving like water tanks and needles Mm -hmm. and all kinds of awful stuff. And when you think about it, it's suspiciously like that version of the alien abduction, isn't it? So is it any wonder that he's co-creating stories like that with people under hypnosis? That's yeah, my take the, anyway. The, you know. uh, that, that was a theme in Alien Abductions even before his work. Only he, he was maybe appropriating it and uh, uh, amplifying it with his witnesses. Well, what, what abduction research are you talking about? Oh, well, let's say the Hills abduction or the Betty Andreessen stuff, which happened in the 60s. It was also surgeries, med- medical procedures, stuff like that. Huh. I don't know. Okay. I mean, maybe. 
No, I, I'm just trying to say like the motif, the narrative of the medical examinations is not something that sprouted from buds directly. It was already right. present in the pop culture. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Well, I, I mean, was it the, like, this is what I'm getting at. Like he, I always just thought, yeah, these things were around, but really Bud Hopkins and Whitley Strieber are what thrust alien abduction stuff into the public spotlight. Like you would have really? to sort of search for Betty Andreessen. That wasn't like anything on anyone's radar. Okay, so uh, the Andres Andreessen affair in went out in the late seventies, I think, and it was on the New York bestsellers list. So, was alien abduction research a thing before the eighties and nineties, before uh, Missing Time from Bud Hopkins? I don't think it was mass marketed and popularized until until then. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. And also, um, you know, Travis Walton, like there are these big cases that are sort of the landmark moments where something flares up and dies down. But I think the one, two punch of, of, uh, Hopkins and Strieber pushed the little gray with the big eyes thing, um, into the mass market globally. And I think it became, and it became made that alien abduction stuff, a permanent fixture of oh yeah because before him i mean uh, the travis walton case kind of has gray like entities but it also has nordics um but if you look at the uh, pascagoula abduction those aren't grays those are a totally different thing in the 70s yeah but what i'm saying is like those were popular for a minute and then they died down you know they're like Mm -hmm. they're like a curiosity for a minute but now it's an ever-present thing in pop culture, and I think that's due to Bud Hopkins and Whitley. Strieber. Yeah, yeah. The, I the the as you say, the cookie cutter alien abduction. Because before him, it was not a cookie cutter thing. It there were very right. uh, many different variations of the abduction experience, and he yeah. standardized what an abduction is and mass marketed it. He is the Walt Disney of alien abduction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the question to me is always like, how much did he actually believe? Because when he, I mean, when he came on my show, he had mentioned something about Phil Corso. I must have asked him about Phil Corso and uh, the day after Roswell, you know, the the alleged yeah. uh, back engineering of stuff. And he had uh, written, I guess, an article about how he had debunked Phil Corso and was so proud that he had like told Phil Corso to his face, I think, that he thought he was a fraud. And he actually mailed me in the mail, not the email, but the snail mail. He bothered to email me the article and, you know, say, look, this is how I take down Corso. So I don't know if you do something like that, if you know that you're a fraud. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's at least for a while, some part of him believed the stuff that he was believed in the work that he was doing. Um, so I, I read uh, Carol Rainey's article, which was in your Peritopia magazine uh-huh. when she came out with all that stuff. And it was very eye-opening for me. I think she addressed that situation you're talking about because Bud had his own uh, Roswell witness uh, person named Beanie, I think. I don't know now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, how I got to you, uh, I read Missing Time. And I posted some kind of meme on social media, like, uh, this book is great, Missing Time, and this book is trash, and it's uh, the Philip Class book uh, about abductions, where he was debunking Travis Walton. 
Um, and somebody told me like both books are trash, but like you do you. And I'm like, wow, what am I missing out on? Because everybody is talking great things about Bud Hopkins. The thing is, I, I, it, my gut feeling is always there's something fishy here, but it's the peer pressure, you know. When when you're in these circles, and especially with fanboys, and you talk about these uh, great. Uh, names in in the community and their uh, books that everybody has read and their sacred cows you cannot say anything against them they are gods so you're kind of peer pressured into accepting that um, and not challenging it so i was intrigued and wanted to find out more and then i stumbled upon everything that came out after he died when uh, carol rainey started talking um, and it was fascinating. Like I read everything about that, everything she shared. Mm-hmm. Um, she started writing a memoir, uh, the abductionist's wife, something like that. Uh-huh. She had a story that where uh, Bud Hopkins was uh, hypnotizing a woman who has a daughter who has like 20 something different deformities from birth. Like a bulging head, bulging eyes, stuff like that. Very thin. So she has a very ill ill child. And Carol Rainey was writing that Bud Hopkins was essentially through hypnosis, uh, encouraging this woman to accept the narrative that her child is a a failed hybrid experiment. Right. That that sounds very fucked up. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I can't tell you. I mean, I don't I guess I shouldn't make it sound like it's more than you can count on one hand, but uh, a disconcerting, I mean, one is disconcerting, but uh, more than one is even more disconcerting. People, moms in, in ufology who have um, autistic kids or kids on the spectrum who they say are indigo kids or, you know, whatever the, the term is now, star, star seed. seeds. Yeah. They're, you know, it's like you can't deal with your kid's disability. They've got to be special in some way. Uh, so that, yeah, that's, oh I yeah. Guess, to well, be expected. I don't know. In Carol Rainey's article, she did state that Bud got a lot of uh, mail from uh, therapists of his own clients. And the therapists were saying, like, my my client is a victim of childhood sexual abuse. And what you're doing is just, uh, you know, promoting this fantasy world where now they're creating a fantasy out of their trauma and you should stop this. And he was just ignoring ignoring that and keeping these people for two, three years uh, as subjects. Yeah, I mean, a topic like that is tricky because, well, it shouldn't be tricky with Bud Hopkins or somebody who's like, you know, an artist and amateur, sometimes hypnotist who <laughs> makes money off of books. Like, right, that guy should have to reckon with that uh, and and stop doing it, I would think. But like, I have these experiences. I was sexually abused as a child. I know the difference. So I've heard the, 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 the thread forever now about how mm-hmm. all abductions are a cover story um, for childhood sexual abuse. Uh, but it doesn't make sense because this isn't a cover for that, in, at least in my case. Um, they're coincidental. Like, so for someone like me, I mean, uh, you know, it, it would make more sense to, yeah, work on my issues, but then... Ultimately, if there are two things going on, sexual abuse and abduction, then there are two things. But for someone like Bud Hopkins, who's not an experiencer, who is just putting people under hypnosis, and he's not a therapist, he's an author and an artist, 
Let's not forget mm-hmm. this. He is, has no training in this whatsoever in any real way to have, you know, s- any psychological component to his work with people. Yeah, he should cease and desist. Also, uh, if he's an artist and he was an abstract artist and a very prominent good artist, um, you'd think that he would be able to recognize what would be uh, maybe psychedelic expression and not stick to nuts and bolts stuff and take everything at face value as a freaking abstract artist. The dude did not understand symbology and metaphors and, and archetypes. Yeah, that's weird. I guess I hadn't thought about that, but that, that, that you're onto something there. That's odd. I mean, (laughs) but also, I mean, I get the sense that, well, I don't know. I was going to say maybe there's something sort of, oddly puritanical about him because um, there is something oddly puritanical about David Jacobs, at least from what I understand, and they were besties, so it would follow, but I, I don't really know. Well, the thing is with Bud, like most people would say that it all came from a, a good place that he did not intend any harm, that he was helping people because these people could not access uh, mental uh, mental help. Um, either because they did not have money or because they were afraid they'd be ridiculed by the therapists. But still, the problem with that is, you know, in Paratopia magazine, that, that one issue, maybe that's why you thought I was big for writing because, uh, that one issue of Paratopia magazine, but it's literally just the one because we were like, Mm -hmm. wow, this is so powerful. One and done. We're never going to top this. The other article in that that was completely surprising to me is Deb Cobble, who, a.k.a. Deb Jordan from Bud Hopkins mm-hmm. uh, books. And uh, she said that, she, you know, her uh, she had a dream about um, a little girl who whatever seemed familiar to her in some way, almost like a daughter or something. And Bud Hopkins tried to convince her and essentially wrote in his book that. That was not a dream, but was an experience with her, you know, space child, essentially, coming to check up on her. I mean, that's the way it's written in the book, but that's not what her experience of it was. It was that this was a dream and she wasn't sure what it meant, but she brought it to him and he turned it into that. So is that um, innocent? I really, I really don't know. Like I see that as, uh, let's say my mom needs heart surgery and I want to help her, but I can't be the one doing the surgery on her if I'm not a fucking surgeon, you know, you can't, (laughs) you can't if you're a narcissist. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, that's the thing. Like a lot of people want to paint the picture that Bud was helping people and that it was coming from a good place. But what Carol Rainey says and Oh man, this just goes on my nerves. Whenever I mention Carol Rainey, I would get a lot of responses from people who would say, oh, she's a scorned woman or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, um, Carol Rainey herself, from what I understand, uh, grew up in a kind of religious cult or something. You probably know that better than me. I probably did and I've forgotten, but yeah, I... She, she, I, in, I don't know in if it's a, literally a cult, but yes. Okay, re- religious, uh, strict religious upbringing, and um, 
Then she met Bud, and if Bud was really a narcissistic guy, and what Bud was doing, it was kind of a cult itself, the Intruders Foundation. Um, I could understand why somebody in her position would not come out with all that stuff. Even after his death, when she came out with all that stuff, she got a lot of backlash that now she's not talking with anybody. That makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... uh... That was all it was when she came forward was um, scorned wife, jealousy, blah, blah. Um, But just the same thing with with Emma when she's, you know, oh, she's crazy. Oh, she's insane. You know, and Jeff and I would always say, you know, one, she's not crazy. But two, even if she were crazy, then what's he doing with a crazy person? Why is he centering a book around a crazy person and doing this with a crazy person if he knows she's crazy? Uh, but it never oh, yeah, comes and- back on on the male researcher. It never blows back on them for a lot of these people. I mean, this is the thing, you know, that actually I, I mm-hmm. hate to do a, a plug here, but I mean, my new book is sort of about, but also just my work in general, I think, is really taking it to we again, we say that we're in this for some sort of truth, you know, especially these disclosure advocates. And we can't disclose us to ourselves. We can't see our own racism. We refuse to see our own sexism. And we think that this consciousness that produces this, even in the context of asking about aliens and stuff, um, is the thing that should shake hands with someone from another planet or another dimension. Like, we believe this is our best self, right? (laughs) We see no problem there's a problem here. If this is what being a, a whole human is, when we say human nature, if that's what human nature is, that ain't ready for prime time with uh, intergalactic NAFTA, I don't think. I also think that the abduction phenomenon and the paranormal overall is not about aliens out there somewhere. It is about things within us. And as you say, we do not want to acknowledge our racism and sexism. We do not want to even go anywhere near ourselves. We don't want to be introspective in this field. We just want to go chasing monsters and hunting them down. Yes. But the monsters are within us. That's true. But we, uh, and it's even more like the chasing monsters and hunting them down in the fantasy mind of the fanboy, if you will, Mm -hmm. or whatever, uh, is also part of the defense mechanism. Like the true fact is you don't want to chase these things down. You're afraid because, uh, at the end of the day, it is you that you have to confront first before you can ever ask about the other in any honest way. Um, but even asking about the other, it's not about, it's only ever about forming an answer. And that's what hypnosis gives you. It gives you an answer. It gives you a nice, tidy story. And then you can control that in a fake, you know, live action role play LARPing way where you and your buddies get together and, and have a quote unquote deep discussion about this fantasy, you know, this fantasy science fiction story that, that has been concocted and what to do about it. You know, never mind the fact that it's not true. Now we're on to what to do about it, (laughs) right? Do we petition the government? Do we build bombs? Do we sing Kumbaya and call them in, you know, flash lights in the sky and call them in? Like all of this stuff is 
is a def- to my mind is a defense mechanism um because you haven't dealt with yourself because to you can't talk about the other without without knowing you first and we are so afraid of that and we saw that with covid um you know people making up stuff about how it's not real and you know all this sort of conspiracy stuff because um there's your enigmatic other there's your alien right like literally body snatchers this thing disrupted the human species on earth and society as we know it and like a, not all of us obviously but a good portion of us wanted to pretend that it wasn't true and these not coincidentally are a big portion of the same people uh, the same population in in ufo and paranormal studies um so that's not coincidental. I mean, we already have, I guess my point is like with COVID, we already have an example of what would happen if aliens actually landed because we think that we would do this and we would do that. Now, what we would do is go nuts and freak out and believe the wrong things. That's that's kind of what we would do. And that's pretty much what we do in their absence right now is just make up stories and believe the wrong things and freak out about that. I mean, God, also, if you ever just sat still for a minute, all of this would change, you know? <laughs> When you said uh, the the truth, um, I think all of these stories are true, but they are true to the person. They are not true overall. They are not material truth. They are subjective uh, truths. And the problem is when uh, people in this field want to take a story, a personal subjective, uh, let's say shamanic experience of, of a witness, an experiencer, and uh, apply that to everybody and to the whole universe instead of the inner space, the outer space. The the notion that an experience of one person cannot just be one person's experience, but it needs to apply to everyone. Like the other day I was listening to some kind of CE5 channel or whatever, and they were telling the host of the show that the host needs to prepare because everything will go off the grid because they met this alien who is a mantis and has this and that name and he told that person this and that. Like, okay, I believe you, but I believe that's your personal experience and it's a reflection of yourself and it's something that you need to go through. It's the other um allowing you to challenge yourself to come to terms terms with yourself but it's not something that's applied to other people well this, yeah and this gets to an issue of um is what you're experiencing only spectacular to you or does it apply to society at large to anyone else and i think when we have experiences whether they're psychedelic or mantis abduction beings or whatever it is um mm-hmm. You know, it could be that they're lying. It could be that they're delusional. It could be all those things. But it could also be that they are having some sort of visionary experience. And because it's not a dream and because it's a spontaneous experience, it feels so real to them that they're unaware, unless someone points it out, that their experience is really only important to them and doesn't actually apply to the rest of us. Like... If a mantis being can't tell you something that I could tell you in a conversation, it's not special. I don't care. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but you're not allowed to say that. Uh, it's important to you. It's for you. But but then they inoculate themselves 
generally by not having, quote unquote, judgmental people around them or negativity in their personal space or whatever it is. They only want people who will validate and reconfirm their bullshit. Uh, and that's when it becomes delusional at that point, you know? Okay. Do you believe that the other co-creates with us the experience? Uh, yeah, for sure. Okay. Are you willing to maybe go into your own abduction? Was it the one, uh, in that first book that you wrote or did you have other uh, experiences? No, I mean, funny enough, the, the biggest experience happened shortly after I published that book. I was like, right, oh, yeah, the sequel. yeah, here comes the sequel. <laughs> mm-hmm. No one will believe this. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, this will be probably the last show I hope I ever do on hypnosis and uh, let it be the last show I ever do on just telling my experiences because <laughs> I, I, so I understand that. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, I just uh, interviewed with Whitley Strieber for for Dreamland, which I think will be sometime in October coming out. Mm -hmm. And I went back through these experiences and it's like you tell the story and you realize like you're telling the story the same way you always tell the story. And now the story isn't real anymore. It's just this campfire thing that you tell, you know. Okay, I I wanted to go into this. You don't need to share the story if you don't want because people can go listen to your appearance on Where Did the Road Go? There you told the experience there. Um what I wanted to ask you is this, like uh, since you have been for over a decade or more telling this experience over and over again, do you think now that the version that you are let's say go willing and prepared to tell me is actually what you experienced or is it something that you solidified through time by repeating it over and over? No, I, I did experience it, but okay. I, I, I do want to tell it this okay. one last time because sure. I, I wouldn't want to leave people hanging like that. And also because I think you're a, a smart enough mind to have decent questions about it. Uh, but I think you're referring to what happened in 2001. Uh, this is after I published my first book, after I uh, had experiences that um, are tidbits of things, right? But nothing where I actually can say I wasn't dreaming. I was in full consciousness and I saw them. This was that. So in 2001, this is now dig, if you will, all the trickster elements here, people. Uh, this is shortly after, like a month after, um, the 9-11 attacks, uh, in New York. And I'm, I'm living in New York. I'm living in Queens and I'm a virgin. This is going to get a little dis not graphic, but, uh, certainly cringeworthy. Um, mm -hmm. and like so many people, apparently after 9-11, everyone had sex, <laughs> at least in America. I didn't realize this until I saw like articles on this. Apparently it I makes fell into evolutionary, that. It makes <laughs> yeah. evolutionary sense. So, uh, I met a gal online and we fell in what we thought was in love with each other, like pretty immediately. And um, she decided to come meet me, which I thought was stupid because I'm a stranger and I live in New York. And <laughs> like, why would you ever come into my, you know, serial killer den? But OK, she she decides to take the chance and come and visit. And uh so night we she ends up being my my first and um the reason that I was a, a virgin for so long or one of the main reasons was because 
my fear of this alien abduction stuff, I didn't want to give it to someone else, you know, because you read this all the time and you see it in the documentaries, how it um, can affect other people's lives who are close to you. And I don't, you know, it's scary. It's confusing. I don't want to give that to somebody. Um, but screw it. I'm going to give it to her. <laughs> and oh, I gave it to her that very first night. Is this the misogyny you were talking about, Vuk, earlier when we were up on? No. Uh, <laughs> well, we we live in different times now. It's not 2009 anymore when you were doing oh, Paratopia. It. Damn it. I can't no, do the I, Howard Stern I, stuff. That that reminds <laughs> me of the horror movie It Follows, if you're, if you're aware of that movie. There's an entity there that is transferred via sex. Huh, and great. in order to get rid of the entity, you transfer it to somebody by having sex with them. Um, okay. Well, let's but, hope that didn't happen. So, okay, night one uh, goes swimmingly, nothing. So I breathe a sigh of relief and I think, oh, okay, well, aliens didn't show up. So, whew, this is going well. Okay, great. Uh, and now it's off my mind. We go, we have a great day, all that. Uh, come back, have a great night, fall asleep. And, uh, this is night two. A light is shining through my window. Now I, I am poor at this point. Uh, so I have a mattress on the floor in a bedroom. I mean, already a great setup for this this woman to you know show up. And we're sleeping on this mattress on the floor, and I see a bright light coming in through the window. And I look over at her, and she's still asleep. Um, it's not bugging her. So, but I crawl, sort of you know half crawl over her to peel back the shade, and I just see this bright light. And I'm, I look down at her again. She's not stirring. So I'm like, okay, if she doesn't care, I don't care. So I roll back over uh, and look up and standing right over me and us, I guess, uh, are these three uh, short gray beings in tunics with the big eyes, gray to the blue hue, not like completely gray, but more sort of a, I don't know, bluish, shinyish gray. Um, and they're wearing tunics <laughs> and they're standing there and they're my reaction to them is complete and utter terror. And I just, ah, I start screaming, but nothing is coming out. There's no sound coming out of me. And their emotive quality, if I can call it that, because they don't say anything or even have real sort of facial gymnastics going on or anything, it, but their emotive quality is just sort of this childlike naivete, like, hey, come with us. That's just the sense I get from them. But my reaction to them is terror. And... The next thing I know, and this is literally just the next thing I know, uh, I'm standing uh, in my underwear as I had gone to bed in some like nondescript room with a light source coming from the ceiling, presumably, although I don't see a ceiling. And uh, it's the same kind of light source that was out the window. There's a row of tables in front of me and there are naked humans lying on them, presumably unconscious. The one closest to me is this blonde woman in her like late fifties, maybe. And the three beings are standing around her and gesturing with their hands. Like, you know, like you might like right this way, but they're like saying, see, this is what we do for a living. Uh -huh. That's the sense I get from them. Now I'm not in terror. So I must've been sedated between point A and point B in some way where I'm not in, in feeling anything. And I think to myself, why am I here seeing this? And this female voice that I recognize from other odd scenario, <laughs> high strangeness scenarios, 
says in my head, because you've always wanted to remember an abduction. And then we go on to have this long conversation, uh, telepathic, if you want to call it that. Um, and I don't remember what it was, but I do remember remembering it the next morning. I mean, that's all I remember, right? Cut to the next morning. And the next morning, I remember that convert. I remember remembering that conversation, but I let it go because I, even though at this point I'd written a book about this and I was writing for UFO magazine and all that, I still did not want this to be real. Because even that guy, even being that guy, when it happens, you don't want it to be real. It's that viscerally, like, just shocking and terrifying and all of that. So I just thought, like, she didn't move. This couldn't have happened. It's impossible. The timing of it. This is I, before I knew anything about George Hansen and trickster theory. But just the fact that I was waiting for this to happen and then it didn't. And then the next day, that's too much of a joke. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so... I let it go. Cut to a year later. And a year later, I'm still in the same apartment. Um, one of my roommates had gone off and gotten married, and I took his bedroom, and I graduated to a real bed. So, and there was this uh, subletter we had, who I hadn't really met yet. He had come in, I think, the night before, and I just hadn't played the getting to know you game with this guy. So, this is a year later. I'm in the kitchen. I'm talking to the subletter early in the morning. I'm sitting in a chair. And as we're talking about just, hey, how you doing? Getting to know you. My left nostril starts bleeding. And this bleeding nostril immediately provokes a flashback to that night. Not the night a year ago, but, you know, just the previous night before talking to this roommate. So the flashback is... <laughs> uh, that, well, I should say, I, I guess I remembered this part consciously before the flashback. The other thing you have to know about me now, folks, this is where it gets uh, too stupid to not be true, is that I have this uh, kundalini, if you want to say that, energy that is perpetually alive in me. That if I shut up for a second, uh, my sense of self, it comes alive and it does things. But the things it does are sort of like whirling dervish twirls or uh, Tai Chi looking things or yoga. It does like spontaneous coordinated movements is what I'm getting at. So essentially, it, if you shut up, your butt start, starts talking. Something like that. <laughs> so, but every now and then it wants to come alive and do its own thing. And it's up to me to allow it to do that or not. So the night before it wanted to uh, do something. So I let it and it has never done anything so pedestrian as what it did, which was essentially just pinch the bridge of my nose really hard and I think cauterize it for what came next. Because so with that out of the way, that like that happened and then I fell asleep. And early in the morning, I'm assuming, or sometime between night and morning, um, I see a light outside the window, a la what happened a year earlier. At least I think I see it out the window. Again, I'm in another room. I'm looking out the window, which is sort of to my front left, and I don't see the light. Like, the light wakes me up, and it's bright in my room, but there's no light out that window. And I, so I sort of roll to my my right side, where my wall should be, is this, like, vortex or force field. It is this bright white light is where my wall should be. And as I'm looking at this, where my wall should be, my nose uh, starts bleeding down the back of my throat. 
So I think that this meditation energy, like this was the first connection between, to me, the meditation energy and this other phenomenon, which is, um, I think it cauterized my nose for this. And then I think when Mm -hmm. my nose bled in the morning, it triggered a flashback. And when I saw that bright light, it's the same quality of bright light that happened a year ago. So now I could no longer ignore the abduction thing that happened a year earlier because this was the same light as that. So all of this was like of a piece, you know? Um, and I guess the only thing that I can add to it is that, you know, we had had, <laughs> probably not surprisingly, we had a falling out, the, me and the, the gal that, that time, like mm-hmm. while she was there and I never saw her again. And, but I did find her again online and we sort of reconnected and I asked her, Hey, do you remember anything from that night? And, uh, she did not. So she has no sort of even like hidden memory. Um, so that's, that's that story. Okay. So I wanted to ask you this. Um, why did you feel that you would be transferring an alien abduction to this woman? Was this the first abduction you had? It wasn't the first, but it was the first, um, it was the first, like I saw their face or their faces. And it was like solidly that, uh, with a communication and all that. Um, but the reason is because of the literature that I was reading. I mean, purely just like what other people had said about their experiences. So you already, based on prior experiences, had the notion that you may be an abductee or an experiencer. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely saw, you know, a UFO that was spectacular in the eighth grade. And then through high school, there were these little experiences that made me suspect that I was an abductee. And then looking back on like weird things that had happened in my life and in my family's lives um, prior to that UFO experience, it all became sort of a, a pattern. And from your experience talking with experiencers, man, so many same words here. Yeah. Um, are most of them, do most of them have this motif of, uh, let's say, seeing a UFO as a child and having these uh, situations where they feel they may be an abductee until they have that grandiose uh, ab- uh, abduction that they remember? I don't know. I, I think everyone has a dangling carrot in early childhood. It, which doesn't have to be a UFO. Like uh, the the UFO wasn't the dangling carrot for me. The, the dangling carrot was when I was like two or three years old, and um, was out on like the balcony area. We lived, I think, on the second floor of a walk up apartment building, and seeing this parade go by. I used to call it the quick parade because it was fast, you know. I mean, there were elephants, there was a marching band, there was, you know, the conductor of the marching band looking up at me and, you know, someone banging on a drum and the whole thing. And it was like this parade that was just literally just came around the corner and started parading down the street. And I ran into the kitchen to get my mom and sister, dragged them into the room and there was nothing there. And you can say like, that's just a childhood I, I I don't know how it makes sense to say that's imagination. I mean, if it's imagination, it's impersonal. I didn't imagine it myself. It just conjured itself up before me. But mm-hmm. I, I remembered that forever. I mean, I didn't know to associate it with this stuff, but it was just a fun story to tell everyone. It always left, you know, an indelible mark on me. And the one thing, 
you know, funny enough, I mentioned that I talked to Streber and he mentioned Project Core, which is a survey of experiencers that Jeff Ritzman and I, along with some college professors, put together. And Streber had asked, um, well, did you find any commonalities? And the, <laughs> of course, I forgot, I forgot until I was telling my wife this and she was like, oh, yeah, you must have told him about the commonality that uh, what you find is that experiencers have a whole panoply of um, experiences, not just UFO and aliens, but all kinds of weird shit. And of course, naturally, yeah. I forgot. I forgot that. So I'll tell your audience what I didn't tell his, which is that's common of having a whole bunch of what you might call shamanic or something, but a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't seem to fit, but that is all interrelated anyway. And so I would say that we all have a dangling carrot thing that happens in early childhood. And it's up to you whether you latch onto that or not to sort of co-create this feedback loop that sort of pulls this thing into reality or at least into your life. You know, however much you pay attention to it is how much it, it's going to interact with you. Okay, so the re we already know uh, that the reason nobody knows of these high strangeness experiences and that they are a commonality is because writers and researchers cherry pick. They want the stories to fit their narratives. Um, yep. This is something that's prevalent even in cryptozoology. And I know you're not from that field, but like Bigfoot uh, experiencers uh, see Bigfoot along with spook lights or UFOs or see Bigfoot going through a portal or disappearing, stuff like that, you know, or, or um, poltergeist activity. And the Bigfoot researchers only care about the Bigfoot, how tall he was and how far he was. And that's that. And they erase everything else. Yeah. And part of that, too, I mean, is I, I, you don't know how much of this is conscious or not, but there just probably is this natural thing of like, OK, we we know that there's something real about this and we know that it must appeal to a mass audience. How much bullshit can they take? You know, like how much sort of nonsensical experience can they take before they stop paying attention because it's crazy? Um, yeah, but if we start perceiving this as perceptual artistic expression, let's say, maybe the public would be more open to accept all this, you know? We want to force a narrative down their throats that this is nuts and bolts stuff and that there are ETs out there um, visiting us. Instead of saying, oh, these are shamanic psychedelic experiences co-created by us and another and are a ref reflection to our subconscious and stuff like that. Uh, uh, why is, as I said, abstract art even a thing, but yet we are not able to accept paranormality as being a thing? It's just because of uh, our need to cookie cut it and force a narrative upon it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you probably know the answers to those, right? I mean, there are a few of them. One is we're still um, in Western civilization is still a religious civilization, unfortunately. Part of that religion has given way to the religion of science. And God forbid there be something that science can't understand or is not even in its wheelhouse. Um, these are issues. Uh, but also it gets to the, again, back to the fundamental question of what are we, you know, if this isn't little gray aliens who are here to uh, invite us into the galactic federation of whatever, or to do awful experiments on us and then leave or steal our resources, you know, the way we do, 
then why are they talking to us in this way? Why are they interacting with us in this way that we don't completely uh, comprehend? And the thing is, the way that they're interacting with us is antithetical to the Western civilization delusion that we've built for ourselves and to the materialist delusion that we've built for ourselves and that we we function out of. So, mm-hmm. I mean, if you just even think about like physics, uh, how crazy f- theoretical physics has gotten with the theorizing, and mm-hmm. yet that hasn't trickled out into mainstream thinking at all. Like we still think in terms of materialism, we still think in terms of mechanical universe when we think on a day-to-day level, but that's not even reflected in our scientific thinking anymore, really. So how hard would it be for the enigmatic other (laughs) to also break through as, you know, in the language that it is speaking? It just, it's natural in our unnatural, unhealthy mind to want to compartmentalize it into like Bigfoot, aliens, ghosts, blah. And but but the thing is, like discovered. with the advent, with the advent, not just of science, not just of religion, but also capitalism. Yep. The more you label something, the better you can sell it. You know, that's true. It, well, so that's you, true. you like, know that abstract art, you know, cannot be sold, and artists are ninety nine percent doomed to fail. Uh, but, uh, if you market something as real as material or, uh, I mean, the point of science is not to, uh, seek the truth, but seek the truth, which may be exploited and, uh, profited off of. Yeah. Well, and also you bring a good po- point up here too, at least in America, uh, in the eighties, I think it was, you know, the arts had been completely defunded as a governmental, you know, there used to be arts money <laughs> for for <laughs> artists and there isn't anymore and um so what if yeah i mean what if even there are aliens that come here and speak in some sort of abstract uh, artistic way and we have aren't they already speaking in an abstract well, way yeah I high mean, so <laughs> if we completely devalue in in our commerce which is our system capitalism you know mm-hmm. if we completely take out of capitalism even uh like authentic artistic expression and and devalue it to the point where we're like yeah you people don't matter go get a job mm-hmm. what happens to to the the hippies from another planet who uh want to talk to us so back to that uh i don't want to say first experience but grandiose one when you lost your virginity <laughs> after 911 so you already said that there uh, that people had sex all over the place during 9/11 but are you aware like after 9/11 happened did uh was there kind of a spike maybe in paranormal activity in New York or in the area Not that I'm aware of Okay I was thinking about that because the first thing that came to my mind is uh, liminality so 9/11 liminality a liminal time period, uh, you losing your virginity, a liminal period in your own life. And also the location where you are, where you're in an apartment that essentially has nothing. (laughs) Yeah. So do you think this maybe liminality influenced the, uh, experience to manifest? 
I mean, it's hard not to see that, right? Like, I yeah, this but- is an apartment that I had just moved into. Nine eleven had happened. Mm-hmm. It the day. A- I mean, really, it's the day after I have sex for the first time. I so it's as if like you know, talk about you create your own reality stuff. It's like you hold on to this idea forever, and then you let it go. You know, after years and years and years of building up this idea that sex or you know partnership or something is possibly and whatever else goes into sex for the first time you know whatever other you know even just dysfunction psychological dysfunctions i may have had at the time over set over having sex uh all of that stuff is let go is released into the ether as it were and then the next day here come aliens so are there aliens literally on some other side of a veil like waiting for me to have sex my first time so they can come in and do some sort of George Hansen joke like that doesn't make sense nothing actually <laughs> makes sense uh ex- I mean and even my reaction like you know of deep terror to this what is on their end not emoting terror at all uh almost speaks to like the terror is an allergic reaction or something to this experience or an ontological after- shock of it after losing your virginity, because I'm also somebody who lost my virginity in my 20s, um, did you feel like, why the fuck did I even do this? Then that liminality also manifests. Of having sex? Yeah. Yeah, well, because we had had we had gotten into a big, I mean, our big fight that we gotten into was, <laughs> like, we were at dinner, and she was talking about, uh, she had that, that, um, protection you know whatever the shot is you get in your arm that is Mm -hmm. instead of the pill you get a shot in your arm and she had let that lapse by a few weeks and she was telling me this now after we had had sex and was like it doesn't matter i mean i'm sure it'll be fine and i'm like wait we gotta go we gotta go get like condoms and and uh you know (laughs) we gotta go do other protection here we gotta go like and she was not freaking out. And her answer to it was like, well, even if I did get pregnant, uh, I would just raise the baby on my own because, and, and she, she went on to this whole sort of man hating diatribe of like how her father wasn't in her life, which, you know, this all makes sense. But like, so she would not even tell me if she were pregnant, she wouldn't tell me she would raise the baby on her own because she doesn't need a man. She doesn't need anyone, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, oh, wait a minute, this is completely fucked up and unhealthy and uh we're gonna okay, we're gonna march into a pharmacy and get you a pregnancy test right now <laughs> man i i'm i'm thinking how people will react but i don't care like this this is very interesting um i want to ask you like this fight you're explaining now did this fight occur before you had the experience no this was after okay so I have this motif. I mean, I I like to pull stuff out of my ass a lot. And I I like to say that sometimes the paranormal is like a sexual experience. It starts with teases and then escalates your emotional reaction, um, uh, arouses you, sees that you are aroused uh, um, and, you know, works with you to reach a climax. And I'm seeing all this as kind of a gradual uh, arousal and uh, layering of liminality in your life, which culminated with the climax of not not the sex, but the experience you had. Yeah, but so again, this gets to um, it can't happen, and it did happen. 
And there's an internal logic to the story that I told you, right? Like there's an internal logic to even the, the dialogue that we had, like from the perspective of the alien, right? It's like, oh, why, why is this happening? Well, because you've always wanted to remember an abduction. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> that makes sense. Like, but it doesn't make sense. It does and it doesn't make sense. Uh, that's such, I mean, that's pretty vague when you think about it, even though it sounds specific. This could happen at any time. I've always wanted to remember an abduction. You decided to show up the day after I have sex for the first time? Like, that's that's odd. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, the liminality thing is there. I just, I, I don't know what the function is because it's hard for me to pass this off as, like, in a liminal state, you, you have a delusion or you have, a, like, a very vivid hallucination or something. Like, that doesn't really answer it because of the stuff that happened a year later, because of the synchronistic stuff that sort of connects the two. And there is this sense of, and there has always been that I can see with me, at least since the eighth grade UFO sighting, this sense of a puppeteering from on high in some way, like the hidden hand thing, you know, that there is something that can look at your life and move some chess pieces around. <laughs> And, you know, screw you up and make you wonder about, like, what is this all for? <laughs> so I'm thinking now, do you think people who have uh, Kundalini awakenings, did they uh, achieve the Kundalini throughout their life or are they born with it? Is, is it something you carry around in your ass until you have the awakening? <laughs> well, I don't the, the ass thing. I mean, that's I mean, I'm to say, but I don't I don't believe that. I mean, and I don't believe I'm, you're asking the wrong guy because I don't know. Well, the correct answer is it's in all of us. It is us. Mm -hmm. And it's when the sense of self is completely gone and there is silence. When the brain and the body stop projecting a self and there is silence, this impersonal uh, energy has room to maneuver when the personal self is gone. So that's the answer. These people who claim to turn it on and off with meditation or you see these YouTube videos, that's all horseshit. I mean, whatever they're doing, that ain't it. Or at least they're that's not what it's for. You know what I mean? The the calling it up from your ass and it goes into your <laughs> head and you know all this stuff. Um that's like revving an engine, but you're not starting it, you know. Yeah, I'm I'm just appropriating it as somebody who does not understand that. But right. my buddy does understand it. Uh Jordan from Campfire Campfire Tales podcast told me to ask you a few questions. Sure. So he is interested in your meditation and Kundalini. And he told me to ask you if there are similarities between deep meditative state, psychedelic experiences, and instances of high strangeness. Um, yeah, for sure. There's, there's a lot of overlap in that. Um, and also, if you have ever meditated yourself into a psychedelic experience. Into a, what would a psychedelic experience be? A high strangeness experience. Have you ever had a high strangeness experience that you intentionally meditated yourself into? Uh, well, I, when I say meditation energy, when I talk about meditating, I don't have a meditate. Like, it's literally, I shut up for a second and this energy takes over. And there can be visualization components to it or something like that. Um, but it's not me doing it, right? So I'm not sitting there doing breathing exercises. I'm not sitting there creatively visualizing something. 
Okay. Um, I, I, would I say think I, Jordan was yeah. thinking more of psychonauting when somebody uh, intentionally induces a psychedelic experience for themselves. Oh, like through holotropic breath work and that sort of thing? Well, there's this notion that you can learn to spark a shamanic experience, that you don't need to take drugs, but via meditation, you can spark it. Yeah. I, I, the reason I'm hesitating around this stuff is because I don't want to give it any sense of importance because mm -hmm. I, I think even being able to do that is at the end of the day, it's another thought construct. And if you, if you want the true truth with a capital T, not subjective truths, but if you want to know whether there is such a thing as uh, truth, then the self, which is thought, which is the ultimate th thought construct that believes it's in charge of all these other thoughts, but it is a thought construct, that has to die uh, in order for this other, if you want to call it other, it's really deeply you, um, to be able to come consciously clear. And so doing these things, meditations, yoga, breath work, all that stuff, I will experience those things in the proper proportion that my body and psyche need from whatever damage I've done through my own ignorance. Thanks to this, what I say is kundalini energy, although that word is now loaded too, right? But uh, this perpetual you know, energy will do those things. So this leads me to believe that yoga, that breath work, that meditations, all of these things originally came from people who were quiet for a second. And then this energy welled up, <laughs> started doing these, these natural movements, and then they jotted it down and sold it to you as something that you can do as an after the fact um, set of instructions or exercises to get to that space. And that's the part that's the lie. You can't get to nothingness through doing things. But yeah. when there is nothingness, all of these things are just doing. And so if you notice them and you write them down, you can sell them, which is what I should do, but I'm not that smart. So Yeah, well, being in paranormal circles, I mean, I am a, a skeptical guy. I see all of this through the sociological perspective. But one thing I always deny is new age stuff. It's not that I don't believe in all of this. It's just the way it's packaged. There are a lot of people out there selling bullshit. And like, why do I need to have a certain crystal and uh, sage and this candle and this and that? Things you need to buy with money in order to uh, spark something, uh, a paranormal experience. I think all of that is just a way to... Uh, tell lazy people how to focus their intent. But what we need to learn <laughs> is how to focus our intent ourselves, how to create magic ourselves, you know? Well, again, the ritual, what I'm talking about the ritual is there. Mm -hmm. I, I want to say, say the ritual is there to just bring you to the emotional state where you focus your intent. But the ritual itself is, is bullshit and you can do whatever you need. Just get there. <laughs> Maybe. Um, well, this is actually a different conversation than what, I'm, than what even I'm talking about, but we've had this conversation on Peritopia, and I've talked to uh, different indigenous uh, culture peoples um, about that idea, about whether the object is necessary or the ritual, or is it all just cultural bullshit? And 
I think there's a level of truth to that, but also like Teokas and Ghost Horse, who's a Lakota speaker, and uh, Willie, uh, who he's his my friend Willie Ukea, whose lineage, family lineage comes from uh, the first Hawaiians, not the Tahitians, which are you know came later and merged with them, and then but the very first people who were of Hawaii. Um they both are in agreement about that culture comes from the land. And of course that's true in a materialistic way. Like if you live in a fishing village, you're going to like have stuff dealing with fishing. If you live up the mountain, you know, all of that is fit, but also no, literally there is a consciousness that, you know, if you want to call it mother earth or, or whoever, that transcends and includes us and wherever you are, wherever you live, whatever altitude, <laughs> uh, wherever you live, even on that mountain, culture springs forth the, the consciousness of that, much like the Kundalini energy has this impersonal thing that springs forth, it springs forth in the people. And so are there ritualistic and stuff like that that is specific to that region? I think that's, they would say yes. And I, I would say, uh, probably, you know, I would say that the phenomenon follows the people and the culture and not the land. Well, okay. Here's a better example. So I live in Hawaii now and there are certain things that you hear about Hawaii that happen to be true. And it's almost, you know, in terms of mysticism and in terms of the paranormal and stuff like that. And, it's almost as if, um, I mean, I haven't seen any little gray beings since I've been here. It's as if, like, my interaction with, with that stuff is shaped by where I am. Like, it follows the rules of Hawaii in some sense. I almost wonder if you can't get abducted here because that's not a thing here. Like, that's for people in another place. That's not for here. Okay, that's some that. major uh, John Keel stuff. Oh, is it? Um, yeah, because, uh, I mean, the cultural, historical, and even the the locational context actually shaping the phenomenon. Um, yeah, because natural things here happen here, and this is still a natural place. Um, so, for instance, when Whitley came, Whitley Strieber came, and when we did the, uh, what was it, the conference we did here, um, and I invited him to be here. Uh, you know, we saw an owl swoop by, you know, which was Mike <laughs> Cleland with you. <laughs> no, thank God. But, uh, <laughs> but no, but Willie was, and, uh, you know, he's going to interpret that one way, but the fact is like things like that are, are what happens like well-timed animal placement, let's call it, or like the, the, the creating your own reality thing. I mean, that is just a fact here. Like you can literally you've got to be careful what you say out loud. Be careful what you wish for because within a day or two, it's going to happen. Like that kind of thing is the normality of paranormal here. Um, so I don't experience that in New York. That's interesting. I mean, the co-creation, then if the other is co-creating with us, it's not just co-creating with us, it's co-creating with our surroundings as well. And with the people we are with. Yeah. Yeah, but maybe also there is an energy in certain, you know, di different parts of 
of the land have different, you know, energies, whatever that means. I mean, that's such a nebulous word, but maybe whatever the energy that you feel is its own sense of consciousness in some way. And that that consciousness expresses in these abstract ways differently in different parts of the world. And so maybe there are some parts where you can do a ritual that is sort of given to you, emoted to you or whatever by the land itself that works there that won't work somewhere else. Like again, you know, Teoks and Ghost Horse talks about how the Lakota would uh, play the flute to, you know, the song that the corn taught them, right? So the crops tell them the song that they want to hear for them to grow. But that song, corn in another field, in another location, might not understand that song because it's not their song. I guess just think of it that way. Mm. So there are essentially racial differences between corn, not just humans. Right, yeah. That, that that sounds very beautiful to me, even that notion and even the notion that the corn is telling somebody what music to play. I mean, because I'm of the Guyanist perspective. Yeah. <laughs> well, and so does that translate to all of this stuff? You know, I mean, is this stuff that we call high strangeness and supernatural? Is it just natural? But to us, because we are so divorced from our environment, even that we've lost touch and made it a horror movie. And that horror movie reflects our fear of how we actually are in the world. I had these thoughts in my head. I did not think them through a lot, but I shared them with Joshua Kutchin and he talked about it in his book as well. It's a synchronicity because I got the idea. I didn't even read his book. Like in Fae folklore, when uh, Fae would capture people and take them to Fae, it would not be via a vessel, you know. But now mm-hmm. people are experiencing uh, alien abductions via a UFO as a middleman. So the UFO is kind of like a womb or an in- incubator that is uh, insulating us from the uh, influences of nature. That the UFO is, is, is say that part again. It's essentially a womb that insulates us from the outer influences uh, and ecological factors, you know, just like a womb insulates the baby from the outside world. Um, how? Because I'm confused in what that looks like. Because in order to do whatever they need to do in an abduction experience, they take people and put them into a vessel, into uh, a compartment. I see. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I've been thinking about it like subspace or something. But, I mean, maybe that works too. Um, and are they actually physically taking you? Maybe sometimes, maybe sometimes not. I don't know. I mean, maybe whatever sometimes it is, astrally. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just know that whatever it is, I get a sense that like all this missing time stuff may not be some nefarious... Okay, you're only going to remember when you come and go, but not the in-between. It may just be that whatever the in-between is, is in a location where either your body isn't, so your brain isn't, or uh, you're not, you know, you're in an altered state of consciousness in some way, and it doesn't imprint on your brain um, in the way that memory, normal, you know, events would as memory. Um, So if that's what you mean by sort of inoculating you from the outside world, I get that. 
Yeah, I'm also talking about how paranormal experiences did not have that motif in history. It's just now with the advent of industrialization where we are closing ourselves into uh, buildings and insulating ourselves more and more from the outside influences of nature that we now require uh, uh, an extra incubator in order to experience high strangeness. Huh. Well, that's interesting. I mean, it's possible, except now shouldn't it be changing to online shenanigans? You know, Well, like- isn't it changing? Is it? I mean, we think about it, but <laughs> is it actually? I mean, I don't hear a whole bunch of, you know, computers turning on and off mysteriously or something like that, but you don't really hear a whole bunch of sort of, oh my God, was that AI or what was that sort of experiences? No one's being abducted mm-hmm. by a video game, for instance, or. Yeah, but I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking down the line, uh, the more we are uh, communicating with each other via the interface of these devices, the more we will maybe experience paranormality via devices. I mean, now we have apps such as um, there's how man Uh, Stephen Greer made the app. It's stupid, but it's for CE fives, but there's also Randonautica. Do you know what that is? No. Okay. You focus your intent on a certain thing. You put a prompt and then it shows you a location nearby where you just go and something weird will happen. And a lot of people have done this and experienced weird shit. It's just because you're focusing your intent and allowing an app to tell you where to go to experience something. Huh. Well, that's, I mean, but that's okay. But that's still the same. It's just the same thing, right? It's all, that is the realm of what you were talking about with rituals and stuff where it really is all the same thing of just focusing your intent and then releasing it and then shit comes to you. Uh, okay, I, I wanted to ask you about this. Uh, so my buddy and I are uh, big fans of hoaxing and uh, the value of hoaxing in instigating paranormal phenomena. So you wrote a long time ago about crop circle hoaxers actually experiencing real phenomena. So can you maybe elaborate on that? Yeah, well, this was at a time when, you know, both Jeff Ritzman and I uh, had sort of discarded crop circles as anything other than hoaxes. But then we saw Colin Andrews speak at a disclosure conference and everything he said was brilliant and all of it made sense. Part of it, you know, especially the fact that he was ostracized out of ufology for having said it at all. (laughs) And then when he said it at this conference, Steve Bassett jumps up on stage and immediately sort of says, that's great, Colin, that's great. So it's aliens, you know, kind of thing like. Oh, Isn't man. this wonderful? This is all part of the disclo- the alien disclosure. He tried. He had to recontextualize it into his conference, and what it was was simply that some of these uh, crops or crop formations are of non-human origins, according to Colin. But some of them, many of them, um, are humans doing it. And he decided to interview them instead of just saying, "Oh, hoaxers bad." He decided to interview them, and a good many of them. Uh, told him that they felt at first it started off being art or being a hoax for them. Um, But then they felt this as if from another intelligence compulsion to go out and do it. And he even told the story of, I think it was a father son team who were, they had this massive artistic formation to go out and do, but the father got sick. So they didn't do it, but it showed up in the field the next day anyway, even though they didn't do it. 
So there's even that element to it. So there's this element of like even the hoaxers being controlled or toyed with by whatever this phenomenon is. Um, and and that, were, were some of them maybe chased down by spook lights? I heard that. Yeah. And people talked about, right, about seeing balls of light in the field and things like that while they were out there making their formations. So stuff like that, to me, is the reality of this phenomenon. Like that, that immediately gets my hackles up as opposed to aliens came down and did this. Like the sci-fi, the Pat sci-fi story is so not this that when you hear it, for me anyway, it's, it's this thing. It's this mystery with a capital M that involves everybody. <laughs> and uh, whenever there's this high strangeness element, they just want to say, oh, that's technology that we don't understand. That's technology we don't understand, or that's just hoaxers, or, hey, that's great, Colin. You just talked about aliens. Thanks. You know how in the Bigfoot community they explain spook lights and stuff like that? They say, oh, Bigfoot emits infrasound, and this infrasound uh, causes hallucinations and stuff like that. Wow. Yeah, I've never, I'm not into that stuff, so I've never heard that. That's ridiculous. And it's so interesting because you're from the UFO, commu UFO community. In the cryptid community, there are a lot of these parallels and synchronicities um it's just packaged a different way but still the same things are occurring just different forms and it's treated the same way by the researchers who are cherry picking who are emitting high strangeness and who are just selling bullshit and circle jerking each other well that's that part i knew in general um but i didn't realize there was such minutia as like people seeing ball light phenomena and then trying to explain that away as like Sasquatch farts. Who knew? Oh, there's this there's this huge thing um, uh, of flannel man. It's essentially a Sasquatch that's wearing a flannel shirt. A lot of people are seeing it. That's interesting. It's, I, I saw somewhere online, someone said, why don't people ever see in the sky common objects or, or something like that? I, I can't remember what it was. Like sci-fi stuff. Like if, you know, why don't they see... And they do. The two two of Jeff's favorite stories from when he was a UFO researcher and would actually go out and you know, investigate these things were someone seeing a Mack truck in the air as a UFO and someone else seeing an upside down uh, Starship Enterprise. And these were people that he believed. So this idea that you can see like a flannel guy in flannel, you know, Bigfoot in flannel, like this gets to me to the, the, the idea. I mean, these are extreme examples of it, but I think that this is another commonality we'll find if anyone ever researches it, that there are uh, within the experiences themselves, there is something that's so odd that you may skip over it as an oddness at all until you think about it, but that calls uh, the entire experience into question even for the experiencer as the literal thing that they think they're experiencing if that makes sense and i think okay so if you literally think you're seeing bigfoot well bigfoot and flannel is going to call into question whether yeah. that's a literal experience or not yeah and uh have you ever thought about this why have people constantly been seeing UFOs with portholes? And why have researchers been, uh, been upset, uh, accepting that as genuine nuts and bolts stuff? Think about it. Like a civilization so far away and so far advanced, more advanced than us, is going to come here with porthole windows on the rim of a UFO. And then it's going to land and um, 
the Antonio Villas-Boas abduction, the guy was forced to climb a ladder into the UFO. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, the UFO I saw had porthole windows and there was nothing inside. Uh, so that's even more. <laughs> it's like, yeah, why does that exist? Why is there nothing inside? Why? There's no people. There's no instrumentation you can see through those windows. And yet it's completely bright. Uh, why are there windows in the first place? Right. Because it calls to mind uh, aliens, right? It calls to, it's like a farce. It's a farce of the, the, the thing that we, you know, have uh, even idealized as, as the future of, of our own species, right? Like we're going to build these things and go out into space. Um, and it's also a, a sign that this is not aliens, it is a co-created manifestation that takes the form of the cultural and historical context. Like if you're seeing porthole windows, that's a to totally a fifties, sixties sci-fi thing. But let's say in the Aurora, Texas UFO incident, there was an airship that crashed and allegedly the people found a spaceman inside and found a journal written in on fucking paper. <laughs> well, there you go. I, I mean, I want to give this a context it, if if we have time. I don't know. I mean, we've been talking here for quite a while, but um, I just want to throw this out at, for your listeners to, to chew over. It's what I've been talking about in my last two books, and I'm not married to it. I don't, I don't know that it's the answer, but it feels right to toy with as an idea, which is that what is the, what is happening here? You know, like we always want to get to the answer. What is happening here? Is it possible that as I've experienced, there are two things going on. There is, you know, at least truth with a capital T, you know, impersonal consciousness and movements and stuff like that. I mean, I know that there is consciousness apart from thought that transcends and includes thought. And we are a part of that. I know this to be true through experience that helps you very little, but let's just go with it for a second. Um, if the universe is thought, could there be, could it not be that there are, you know, along with us, there are archetypes, right? There are these archetypal structures in the collective. Yeah. And if there is a multiverse and in the other universe next door, let's say is a being that is awakened to its entirety is wholly awake in a way that we wish we were, but we're not. Are we that being's unconscious baggage? Do they understand that we are interconnected through the architecture of a multiverse, that we are in fact one being expressing as two completely individual lives, but no, we're actually one being. Do they know this and they need to wake us, us up to that? And if they do, do they speak to us uh, through our own thought constructs, through our thought forms, through our archetypes and all of that. Uh, and when they do that, <laughs> um, much like the quote unquote enlightenment experience, um, is there something where our universe allows us to do that for a minute and we take in novel experience for the universe itself to create these landscapes and ecologies and stuff, this ethereal archetypal, whatever, is that how it gains new experience by sort of allowing us to be a fishing lure out into 
the not universe, <laughs> the multiverse, the, the the thing that is not a, its own thought construct, only to reel uh, us I, back I, in. I had a similar uh, thought. I actually shared it the other day with a guest. We were talking about the potential that, uh, like before we were giving food and drink offerings to the fate of the other but now food and drink are plentiful and it's not just it's not a sacrifice so we are giving imaginal offerings we are giving them our attention and time and by creating arts we are providing artistic creative offerings to the other but let's say you know i'm from the gaia hypothesis school of thought there is a gaia that we are a part of an overarching consciousness um, maybe if we are channeling creativity from Agaya, the reason we are channeling the creativity is to pro- provide creative offerings back. So we are uh, given creativity as a tool, and we use this tool to create imaginal playgrounds for this consciousness. And the more it allows us to use its tools, the more we create a playground for it to uh, mingle in. That, that's the idea I had. I don't know if that's what you're talking about. Uh, essentially, the overarching consciousness using us to experience uh, what it is to, to be a human, essentially. I mean, I, I, there's an element of that for sure. But my, my thing is a little more convoluted than that, because I guess what I'm saying <laughs> is like, there's thought, there's the universe, there's archetypes, okay. there's all this stuff. And we can access this through the psychedelics. This is why I was like hesitant with the question of psychedelics and meditation, all that. Because I think what they bring you to are those thought constructs. Some of those thought constructs are replicas of what is experienced in the timeless moment, timeless, spaceless, not of this universe moment. Replicas that are you know brought back and then replicated. But if there is something from that timeless moment, which is also alive, then there are two things going on. One is the replica, the funhouse version, and one is mm-hmm. the serious communication. And if that's true, the only way that that I can think of that we could tell the difference is whether or not what you're experiencing from the other uh, is to wake you up into your fullest sense of being, to essentially create an equal to be able to speak with, as opposed to um, telling you a bunch of stuff that like maybe makes sense maybe is confusing, uh, maybe is selfish, self-involved even. Um, I, I think that would be the difference. Something that shatters you versus something that builds you up would be the way to tell the difference between the two communications. And the universe, of course, wants to remain itself. <laughs> and so if you wake up out of it, that's a problem for the universe. Uh, so it can only afford to wake you up for a few minutes as a lure to then bring back these novel experiences. I guess that's where I'm going with it. But I I do think that in that theory, then there is something on the other side who is, you know, an extension, you are extensions of one another in this multiverse. Uh It's just that it knows it and you don't. So there is no really, there are fae and fairy and all of that in this universe built on, you know, aspects of that stuff. Like, say, let's say, for instance, there's a reptilian in universe number two, and that reptilian is uh, enlightened, <laughs> is at the peak of its consciousness, and uh-huh. it tries to speak to you, and the all it can do is speak to you through, you know, it can't come here and physically do it because it's not made of this universe. It's not, its architecture is is of different dimensions. So 
but there is this way to talk to us, this sort of wormholeish way through, you know, dream visionary stuff. Uh, if it does that, it can't get you to believe in it enough to make it concrete because that just kills it. Then you you're then you're talking to an answer, you know, of your own of your own making. It becomes this religious thing. So it's got to it it's got to sort of talk to you enough for you to engage mystery. But once you engage mystery, the end of mystery really is silence. And if you go silent for a second, you're no longer of the universe. The body is obviously, but the mind is no longer the being projected by the brain which is of the universe. And when that happens, <laughs> uh this impersonal energy I've been talking about becomes the case of the body. This timeless energy becomes the case of the body. If that is sustainable, you know, for me, that is sort of evolved or whatever in various ways. But is if it's sustainable as your identity and not just something that you visit as a stage of, as a state of consciousness, but you live on as a stage of consciousness, uh, is that not what someone on the other side of the veil is trying to, they can't create it, but they can nudge us that way, person by person. Perhaps they're connected to us as individuals. Um, but if we go wrong in that, then we just take the reptilian, we, we, <laughs> we pluck the image here, and then the universe takes that image that we've built up through our beliefs and our expectations and all that and says, boogadabugadaboo. <laughs> and then we think that that's the real phenomenon, but it's not. Okay. I, I, I think I get it, but, but I don't get it. Um, I want to say th two things there. <laughs> <Liminal>. First, <laughs> first, you lost all your credibility because you used the word reptilian. You're welcome, <laughs> I think everybody. People, hey, people like are going to see two and a half hour episode and, and hear you say reptilian after an hour. And I mean, a half I could have said greys or Nordics or a bowl of jelly. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Also, um, I should read your book. So is this uh, in your new book? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Eventually. Okay, and the new book. Yes. No, the, the current one that came out. Yes. I'm, I'm just saying that, you know, it, you, have to, you have to get there. But yes, it's in the new book. Okay. So the new book also has book. a reptilian on the cover. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's true. Okay, so can you tell the listeners uh, what your book is about, what it's titled, where they can find it? Th this is not the end of the episode, but just so we can tell them while we're discussing this concept where they can read it further. Uh, it is called Aliens, the First and Final Disclosure. Um, you know, Amazon is the best way, unfortunately, to get it, probably. Um, it's in paperback and on Kindle. Um, and, I mean, essentially... It, it is, I mean, part of it is a comedy roast of ufology. That's like the first few chapters. Yeah, and that's why I'm, I'm eager to read it. <laughs> right. So, and then it becomes, it sort of baby steps you into getting deeper and deeper into, you know, what I just said, the psychotic thing that I just tried to explain. Oh, so, so you basically at, right at the start need to uh, demolish the established status quo. So you may feed the readers your own bullshit. That's correct. And so I do that <laughs> by saying, listen, since 2017, at least in America, since 2017, uh, people have sort of reset themselves. Like it used to be, it was starting to get to be okay to talk about all of this crazy stuff. But then 2017 happened, this article in the New York times 
uh, the, the admission by the Navy that, yes, there is this UFO footage and we don't know what it is. All of this stuff sort of conspired to bring new people into ufology who have never heard of John Keel or any of this stuff. And so uh, I decide to go back to my roots and call myself an alien abductee and try to relate to them. But in doing so, I essentially end up showing how there is no such thing as an alien. And I tried to explain this to Whitley Straber and he didn't want to hear it, but there essentially is no such thing as an alien. And uh, therefore, let's explore this. And I do say in the book even that this is not, it's not important whether this is true or not. What's important is that it is deeper than what you've got and what you've got is bullshit. And so let's engage our minds in different ways. And instead of, because we have this lazy thing in ufology and probably all paranormal venues think that the deep thing they're doing is contemplating something that the mainstream is not, which is aliens coming here. Well, that's not the deep part. That's ironically, that is the shallow part. It's just a shallow part that fewer people than the majority have engaged with in a serious way. The deep part is seeing past that facade. And when you do, you realize, oh, there is a mystery here that is perhaps uh, unsolvable, but definitely unsolved. It's not aliens. It's not spaceships. And I will say this. The reason that I am adamant that there are no aliens um, is because the, the word alien is a Western construct of a separative mind. It's not something nature cultures have at all. You know, there are nature exactly, cultures yeah. that say they have space uh, family, or maybe they come from a star system or whatever. And yeah, we interpret that to mean what we want. Yeah. So we mm -hmm. interpret that in our own alien way. But alien is a way to divorce yourself from another and essentially create one, something you can comprehend, to then two, create an enemy or a friend out of. And all of that is okay. in your head. So I wanted to ask you so, uh, breaking down your concept, your concept is essentially that the other is luring us a bit and then it is shoving us away by these um, replicated images uh, for some reason, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I mean, essentially they're, it's putting on uh, Halloween masks from our psyche, <laughs> but, but it's uh, it's a constant cycle. Oh, 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 let us, let us lure this person in. And then when you lure him in uh, after, an, I don't know, a certain time you need to shove them back. And it's constantly this cycle of luring and showing back, luring and showing back. So uh, these uh, cycles of uh, these fluctuations in events in ufology are essentially maybe the universe's way of uh, shoving us back so it may lure us in later and so on and so on. Yeah, I think there are two, sh two shoving backs. I mean, I think the universe uh, reels us back for its own ends right which mm -hmm. is that's how it expands through novel experience in this virtual landscape of imaginal realms and whatnot uh but i don't think i mean we're not equals to to our selves on the other side of the veil in this theory um we're not you know essentially what, I'm, what i would be proposing here is that there is a pinnacle of consciousness it's not forever and ever and ever that there is a, you know, quote unquote, universal, but multiversal consciousness as well, that mm -hmm. if you are fully awakened to it, that's the you thing. You become its equal. 
well, that's it. That's true equality and oneness. And anything less than that is a delusion. So it can't, you know, talk to this delusion in any fruitful, we can't get beyond ourselves, essentially. So there would be no point in not reeling us back in or not throwing us back in, I guess. So what do you think that the 2017 disclosure thing is just another uh, form of the universe trying to reel us, uh, reel our attention back to these oogie boogie puppets you're uh, talking about? Well, no, actually, I think the 2017 thing is uh, the government doing that. <laughs> I think the government <laughs> is is like, hmm, but the can't, war on terror can't... went well. Let's do war on UAP. We can get funding forever for that. But can't the government be um, unintentionally and unknowingly channeling the the intent of the universe? I I'm sure it's possible, um, <laughs> but I don't think we have. That's to, giving too much too much yeah. power to them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I do think that we have you know as like broken minded as this is, we still have to have some level of discernment, or else anything can be anything. And I don't think that's true. I think there are differences in motive. <laughs> I don't, I, in other words, I mean, I think capitalism and the, you know, the U S government and all that, uh, they are working, working the room for their own reasons. And I, I don't think it may line up with that, but I don't think it's on even unconsciously on behalf of that. Cause I don't think that's mm -hmm. necessary, you know? Um, and I, and I also think that this is oddly enough, um, an individual thing. It's, personal in that sense. Um, so yeah, it has to remain in society to, to engage with it, but it already is. So it doesn't need reinforcement from like an official narrative that changes UFO to UAP or something like that. Yeah. Okay. So we started this episode with an intent to, uh, shit on hypnosis and this episode went on so long without <laughs> hypnosis. So, um, What's the elevator pitch? What's your deal with hypnosis? Why do you hate it so much? What's the elevator pitch? Uh, the elevator pitch is that hypnosis is okay um, in coordination with other therapies and the such for behavior modification. It is terrible mm -hmm. for memory retrieval. Why you would ever use something that can affect someone's uh, behavior to retrieve memory is beyond me. <laughs> Unless you want to fabricate with them. I mean, the problem, the bigger problem than that is uh, that you're, you end up essentially fabricating a story. Some of it may be true. You may pull up real memory, but you're also pulling up nonsense and, or, you know, not nonsense, but not real memory, imagined stuff. And to the hypnotized person, both of those things may be so real that they will defend it and not realize. I mean, studies have been shown on this, study after study, that you know you can retrieve a false memory under hypnosis and the hypnotic subject will swear, no, that's, that's the truth. That's really happened and it is demonstrably false. So okay, so are, are you aware of Michelle Remembers, the book? <laughs> yes. Okay. So this is something, when talking about hypnosis in these circles, it's always alien abduction, blah, blah, blah. But are people amnesiacs? Like in the 80s, we had satanic panic and all the bullshit that went 
on because of regressive hypnosis therapy and a lot of people being accused for shit they didn't do. And right. uh, once that faded away, oh, now we're using this for uh, alien abduction research. I know it's in a whole industry and people are making money off hypnosis. So now instead of selling uh, satanic bullshit, you sell alien bullshit. But uh, Michelle Remembers is an interesting case for me. It's not related to UFOs, but this uh, hypnotherapist was uh, hypnotizing this woman to recover memories of satanic ritual abuse. And she ended up, uh, apart from, you know, confabulating uh, false information for him, for his book, she ended up marrying him. And how fucked up is that? Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, <laughs> that that is related to UFOs. You know, like that is the story of abduction research up until now. Maybe not the marrying part, but uh, the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right now, up to the fact that I think I said this to you before, mm-hmm. I don't know, but I, I'm pretty sure that this is true, that one of the, you know, guys who hypnotized people during the satanic panic days was a uh, professor, I'm pretty sure was a professor at Temple University. And, uh, you know, that's where David Jacobs comes from. And I think he may have been somehow associated with Jacobs, like his mentor or something. Um, now, don't put me, uh, you know, swear me to that, but I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure that's true. I'm, I'm almost 100% positive he was from Temple University. There's something in the water at Temple that, that is like <laughs> where they're accepting of this stuff in some way. Oh, yeah. And they, they have been d- defending Jacobs after all the Emma Woods uh, stuff came out. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I, I wa- wanted to ask, like, was the Hills abduction the first instance of hypnosis being used in alien abduction stuff? Um, as far as I am aware, yeah. Yeah, because I know Antonio Villas boss happened a few years earlier in Brazil, but he had a conscious memory of his abduction. Um, now, are you aware, like, are there many abduction scenarios where people consciously remember their abduction? Or is most of it just through hypnosis? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, Jeff Ritzman, you know, remembered tons of stuff. Um, I used to host the experience podcast, just talking to experiencers. There are plenty of people who have fully fleshed out memories. So is there a, an underlying reason why these people's stories do not reach the mainstream? Uh, because they would be able to tell them themselves and not have them contextualized by <laughs> a quote unquote expert. They don't need a salesman for their uh, story. Yeah, they don't need a pro wrestling manager. No. Okay, so do you believe that, uh, so is hypnosis an altered state of consciousness? You know, it's funny because I was just listening to uh, the Scott Lillianfeld episode of Paratopia where he comes on and tells us I what have he, as well. what hypnosis is. Yeah. And, you know, I'm hearing new things that I didn't hear the first 80,000 times I heard it. And one of them is that, yeah, I guess he's saying it's not even a fact that it is an altered state. I've taken for granted that it's an altered state of consciousness. He sees it more as giving people permission to sort of act out, I guess. And maybe you could even say in taboo ways. Um I'm thinking, are we able to, let's say, hypnotize somebody and then spark 
high strangeness. What they are experiencing is not a memory of something that happened, but rather a new experience that is being manifested in that place and that time. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm reading a book now called, uh, this, what is it called? The seventh dead by Brian short. And he's an experiencer who has done hypnosis, but going into it, realizing it's not going to take out a literal story. He's trying to explore it in a Jungian, Jungian way. And I haven't finished the book yet, but apparently he claims that at some point out spills onto the floor of his life, an actual mantis being, uh, who is like a hypnotically retrieved construct, I'm assuming. So I guess at least for him, there is this sense of being able to use hypnosis because you've had real experiences and you want to explore them, but you're, you, you understand you're only exploring your own unconscious mind, Mm -hmm. but nevertheless, something of the phenomenon responds to that and comes through. Uh, I mean, I suppose something like that is, possible but the danger of of promoting that as a thing of course is that then people are going to be like great let's keep using hypnosis and they're going to yeah. have amnesia and keep using it to literally pull something out because they're going to ignore everything that we said before that part i'm thinking can hypnosis be used uh, to uh generate a paranormal phenomenon and to maybe psychonaut uh, as a form of perceptual artistic expression of the other. Sure. I mean, why not? But like, is that, why is that important? I guess is my, my rebuttal question. What about Mm -hmm. that is important? I mean, exploring archetypes, essentially exploring uh, your subconsciousness. If you already had an experience, but But, why do you um, want to do that? What is it in service to that you do that? All of this exploration well, stuff. Why? Why do I? I wouldn't do that. I, no, no, I don't not want you, to but be the general ex- you. Yeah, no, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But wh- why do people seek out sh- shamanic experiences? It's well, the same thing. Because I th- right. What are they? What do they say they're looking for, and what are they actually looking for? I, I think that we have to get to the heart of this within ourselves, and then that will also answer why it is that people have amnesia about the satanic panic into UFOs, into whatever the next thing is. Um, Well, into QAnon, you know, like we always have this, uh, there's some, there's a breakdown between the rational thing that we claim we're living in and what actually motivates us, right? And I think we have to get right with that. And I think with the shamanic stuff, it's pretty simple. Like most people, uh, want to be powerful. Most people want to um, have a retreat and have not just a story anymore. They're not just learning. They're not there to seeking higher spiritual whatever. They want to be the shaman, right? They don't want to be the person under the shaman. They want to come out and say, that, I am that. That goes so against the shamanic experience because the point of the shamanic experience is losing your ego and you're going into it because of your ego. Right. And you're returning from it to fulfill your ego. Yeah. I mean, but that's what we are. That's what westernization is. It is the self. And so we say that we're learning. We say that we're growing and we say that we're evolving, right? These are the things we Mm -hmm. use. But the actual experience is, is the opposite of all of that. It is the seeing that that stuff is only your projection so deeply 
that the brain, not even you, the brain shuts you off and there's silence. And in that silence is a complete transformation, not an evolution through time, but the ending of time. And so even people who hear that say, yeah, I want that. I want it. How do I do that? Because the self constantly, even in the neg- hearing and understanding intellectually, the negation of itself uh, is the proper thing to have happen, wants to be the one who does it. You want to take yourself with you when you go. You want to die so that you may resurrect whole, <laughs> right? Like we all, we, we rarely do we watch ourselves so closely what motivates us to see that that's always just the case and that that is what we are. That's what this divorced sense of self from the world, from Gaia, from nature uh, is about. It's about furtherance of self, the end, full stop. But if you're seeking a a shamanic experience through hypnosis via a hypnotherapist, isn't the shamanic experience not just uh, an extension of you or co-created just by you, but as well of uh, your uh, hypnotherapist. Sure. Okay. And in that case, if somebody is re- writing a book, um, who, who has the intellectual property over the story <laughs> because it's co-created by two different parties? Oh, you're, you're going to sign a waiver. Trust me. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Emma Woods signed uh, what looked to be a, a temple document, but wasn't. Oh, man. Yeah. She also says that uh, even I listened to a clip where he was constantly telling her that he never took money for uh, his services. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So there were these clips that were uh, on that uh, show two two days ago, and I listened to the whole show now. It's very fucked up, uh, the things that he was telling her. But also, like... uh, you can feel how predatory it is because not, apart from the sex stuff that he was telling her, let's say he, he's telling her that he never took money and something about Bud Hopkins and blah, blah, blah. And he's constantly repeating this over and over again. And you can hear her in this state just, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Right. You know, it's very fucked up because you can hear that he is taking advantage of somebody in their most vulnerable state. And that somebody cannot protect themselves. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Although I will say, and this is not offense to Emma uh, or mm-hmm. even to stick up for Jacobs, but that, yeah, uh, yeah, is how she is in real life, too. So that sense of like vulnerability in her voice and all of that, I think that would be there whether she's hypnotized or not, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um but well, that, regardless that's maybe, of that. That's why these predatory people take advantage of, of such individuals. Yeah. Well, and Jacobs, I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether he uh, knew that he was LARPing or not, whether, he, you know, he's delusional or he's conniving. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter because both stories are awful and predatory. Like either he's the awful predatory guy imposing all of this crap and going, ah, ha, ha, and rubbing his hand like a villain on these people. Or he really believes it and he thinks that alien hybrids are after him and he's willing to hypnotize a woman, convince her that he believes she has multiple personality disorder Mm -hmm. so that aliens will read that from her mind and not bother him because he's essentially telling them through her, hey, I'm writing a book about multiple personality disorder. I don't believe this is aliens. 
don't mess with me. He's willing to throw her under the bus to do that uh, if you believe that he believes it. If you believe he doesn't believe it, you know, arguably it's worse, but both are really horrible. Um, yeah, bo- bo- both uh, paint the picture of who he is as a person. Yeah. Yeah. Also, um, I listened to that clip as well, where he is constantly and constantly uh, saying multiple personality disorder, multiple personality disorder. If somebody is in a hypnotic state, if you repeat the same thing over and over again, I think it's like putting a person in a bell and this noise being omnipresent and just, you know, ringing in their head constantly. Um, you can see that it is an intentional tactic, what he's doing. He is intentionally repeating the same things over and over again. Um, yeah. Al- also, well, have you also heard the tapes, mm-hmm. I mean, where he just talks about other cases while she's hypnotized? Yeah. I mean, this is the part where he is for sure conniving and manipulative and self-aware, besides the fact that, you know, he just is. <laughs> but uh, in his books where he talks about, I... I'm rigorous and scientific and I don't cross pollinate. And here you hear him on the tape, you know, as Nancy Burns used to jest. I mean, he's telling her every, he's like going down his laundry list. He's like, what I've got to do this weekend. What, you know, I got to go shopping. You know, he's just a chatty Kathy while she's under hypnosis, except that what he's actually telling her is what other people have told him under hypnosis, other experiencers. And this is how you co-create the great hybrid uh, takeover of the earth. You, you front load, each of these people with the story that the other is telling. And then you go, great. Now what's happening to you, Emma? Oh, funny enough, the same thing. That's weird. Well, that's weird also because you didn't come to me with those experiences. What you came to me with was a bunch of other mysterious experiences, but now they're this. Welcome to the fold. Yeah. I'm looking forward actually to reading Emma's book. Um, of her real experiences. I think people, or maybe she should open up to appear somewhere just to talk about her real experiences and not this David Jacobs bullshit. Yeah. Um, because she deserves acknowledgement for her real experiences and for her bravery. Uh, but uh, I'd urge anybody, if any listener is interested, go uh, buy her book and read it. I think it's called glimpses into Magonia, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Yeah, I think Glimpses of Magonia. And actually, if you go to unknowncountry.com and click on podcasts, if click on the experience, that was the last podcast I did for the experience was with her about that Mm -hmm. book. So we talk about it. Okay, I'm going to listen to that. Jacobs. Yeah. Yeah. So what are her experiences like, like in short? Is it anything UFO alien related? I mean, it depends on your perspective, I suppose. Some of them, I guess, do smack of people, you know, some sort of nefarious people doing something with her. Um, mm-hmm. It, it, I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to know, ultimately. Because it, it's actually the- not in my wheelhouse because some of it is like this sort of, um, you know, is it a dream or is there a nefarious underground element of like sort of being led to a place and having these terrible things happen to you, these operations or whatever. Um, it's like the old school know. Dolce base stuff. Then I guess, but only some of it, you know, mm-hmm. and some of it not, I guess. Uh, so do, I guess do, I, do, I, 
Do yeah, people come to David Jacobs who already have these experiences with that preset, maybe narrative or idea, and he just expands on it with his own bullshit? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that anyone who goes to any researcher in the past, I don't know, two decades or so, um, is going to someone whose books they've read, who they familiarize with themselves with, and who whose temperament they agree with, which is why a Barbara Lamb or a, I don't know, Dolores Cannon, I don't know who, I don't know who's on the Fruit Loop side of it anymore, and not the serious evil alien side, mm-hmm. but it's the reason that it's divvied up that way. Personality type A goes there, personality type B goes there. I want to point out that Emma Woods, I think, did not seek out David Jacobs herself, but rather her therapist did it. I think her therapist sent an email to Jacobs to try and help her. Um, So it's a very unfortunate situation for her in her case. Yeah, she could have ended up with Barbara Lamb and been friendly with the hybrids, been a hybrid herself, but no. (laughs) Instead, she had to be raped. I was asking because um, the word Magonia alludes to Valet and alludes to Fae folklore. So I was thinking maybe her yeah. experiences have some kind of Fae undertones. I, I don't well, know. I, I need to I read the book. She, yeah, I mean, read the book. I think that's what she's going for, for sure. Mm-hmm. I think the way she thinks about that. I'm just saying the surface level stories, some of them do smack of, uh, oh, I, I can see that, you know, hybrid whatever element to it. But many of them do not. And I think the way she contextualizes it personally, I don't want to speak out of turn here for her, but um, is more in a Valet-esque way and less of a materialist, yeah, this is aliens. I think okay, it does that's speak awesome. of another hidden yeah. realm, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, she said on the show that she thinks that David Jacobs does not believe in his own narratives. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, like, why is David Jacobs sticking so vehemently to this idea of uh, intrusion of the hybrids and stuff like that? Does he believe in it or is it all just bullshit that sells? And does it even sell? Like, do people eat that shit up? Yeah, they do. I mean, you know, for all the, you know griping we say about oh we don't make any money in ufology some people do you know he's one of them um but also you know i met him once at a bud hopkins event funny enough Mm -hmm. um and this was back when i thought he was real and hypnosis was real and all that and even then there was something odd about him which is he was the guy who like stood in the back of the room and really soaked in that he had a circle of people asking him questions. Like he loved being the center of attention. You could just, it just oozed off of him that he, he loved being the guy that would like look down his nose and nod his head or shake his head. No, that's not true. Like he loved being not just center of attention, but the purveyor of knowledge. And I think that this is something where he can create a universe to be just that. But also, I mean, I'm not a psychologist folks. So nobody sue me. (laughs) I'm just a dude giving opinions here. But man, if this dude isn't also incorporating some sort of sexual dysfunctions into his stuff, I'll eat my hat. I I think there's a perverse fantasy that's also playing out at the same time. Um, 
Yeah, I always thought the whole breeding program thing was very, very icky. Uh, I always thought, why why is Bud Hopkins obsessed with this? I mean, David Jacobs is very, very obsessed with it and hybrids raping people. But also uh, the sense I get from Carol Rainey is that there's kind of a a sense of competition between the two, or there was, you know, in terms of like, yeah, Jacobs was taking it too far for Bud, but Jacobs would see it as like, because I know more than Bud, you know, there's that sort of friendly rivalry almost to the, and all of this is ridiculous. Let's, let's pull back here and say that this is not the way research should be conducted, but here it is. I know Carol Rainey said on a podcast appearance that the two of them would often go to breakfast or something and tell each other, you know, Bud, um, we are the only two people who know the truth. Nobody right. around us is aware of what is happening. Um, it really feels like they are cre- co-creating a fantasy universe for themselves where they can have some kind of power and be white knights uh, saving damsels in distress. Well, sure. And maybe that's for Bud, but I don't see Jacob's fantasy being saving damsels in distress. I mean, I think, you know, the tape where he under hypnosis, he has Emma Woods under hypnosis and he tells her after pulling this this rape fantasy out of her, essentially, of these hybrids mm-hmm. breaking into her apartment. He tells her under hypnosis to send him uh, her underwear that he can, you know, essentially to put it in a baggie, send it to him, and he'll uh, have it examined for like DNA, you know, essentially alien sperm samples, and to do it and just forget I ever asked. He's telling her this yeah. under hypnosis. Just forget he, I ever he asked. He suggested, yeah, he suggested for her to just forget it after sending it. He also suggested for her, you know, guys, you'll know what I'm talking about when you laughingly under your breath say something that you want to happen, but you don't know how it's going to be perceived by a woman. So you kind of present it as kind of a joke, but you're not joking, right? Are we all on the same page? Mm-hmm. He's doing that by suggesting that, well, you know, I was in a sex shop and I yeah. saw this, uh, uh, what was it? Um garter belt or whatever they're with, with yeah a chastity uh, belts chastity belt with nails at the vaginal opening i if oh. you wanted a, i could send that to you and you know it wouldn't uh probably completely prevent them from you know getting at you but uh you know it might make them think twice it's like is this really the dude who's afraid that that these people are going to read her mind and and see that you know <laughs> he's on to them uh none of On it makes Erica- sense. On Erica Luke's show, they uh, showed that clip. And after it, there was just a moment of silence, like everybody was dumbfounded. Uh, Jack Brewer and and Erica. I was even like, what the fuck? And this is just, what you're listening is totally unreal. That somebody would be saying something like that and then sending the tape because she was not taping this. He was taping those sessions and sending them to her. Yeah. And what's... Really? Oh, I didn't. I, maybe I forgot that part. I thought she was taping them, but okay. Right. You're right. I think you are right about that. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. The other unreal thing is that here he is clearly an abuser, right? There's no two ways about that. He's an abuser in that situation, and people are defending him left and right. People have already forgotten that the Emma Woods thing happened until it, it, now she's resurfaced surfaced with this book. 
uh, people want to bury this. And not just researchers, but the interested public as well. Like they're sacred cow researchers and this Mm -hmm. myth story that they've fallen in love with, which is a horrible story to fall in love with, by the way. They so have, I guess, invested so much of themselves in this stuff that they would rather this woman be, you know, abused. For, For the sake of fan fiction. Yeah, and that's after the Me Too movement. That's after we've seen Harvey Weinstein and all these guys and and said, oh, how horrible and tragic that is. Well, apparently not when it comes to our own backyard. That that we still want to cover up. And again, you know, let's let's have a, a disclosure about ourselves before we ever ask for disclosure about the other, because that is far more important a discussion. Yeah. Also, I think like with this disclosure movement, it has become evident that there is a lot of right-wing extremism present in the UFO community. Yeah, which, again, shocked me, and I guess I shouldn't be shocked by anything. And it's less shocking the more I think about, like, right, ancient alien theory, kind of racist. Mound builder theories, racist origin stories of, uh, you know, pre-indigenous cultures coming to America to build those things. Um, uh, what's his name? You know, Chariots of the Gods author, uh, Eric von Daniken was, uh, a Nazi sympathizer. I mean, you look at that. Man, we're going to be sued by so many people. (laughs) Well, I mean, this is out there, you know, this isn't, I'm making this up. You can go find this. I don't know where his sensibilities lie now, but I mean, (laughs) back then, uh, it seems pretty clear. So but these are acceptable or even we were talking off air about like the one Charles Fort book I bought and started to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uses the N word left and right, but people call themselves Fortians and have, you know, I've never heard it even said that he uses the N word in his books. Um, it's not apparently a factor. And I guess you can hide behind like, well, it was back then, but it's still pretty oh, damn yeah, but, shocking. But it's, it's the same with people who love uh, Lovecraft's work. And yet the guy named his cat the N-word. Yeah, and this was after it was cool to be racist, right? Like, this wasn't actually, you know, when when it was, quote-unquote, socially acceptable still, uh, mm-hmm. at least where he was living at the time. So uh, it's there. And then I thought about, like, right, and what were the Nazis about? Like, occult powers. Right? That's sort of their, part of their shtick was going after these occult powers. And it seems like, yeah, there's always been this occult power, UFO, right-wing slant that has always been there. And I guess even I have just ignored it or not pieced together how embedded it is. So should it surprise me when, you know, the people who claim to be searching for for truth and who claim not to trust the government and the authorities rally around uh, a, a, a con man real estate mogul? And, and yeah. say that he is, you know, sort of the savior of the union when really what he is is a, you know, just a carny fascist. Uh, I guess it shouldn't surprise me, but there it is. OK, relating back to hypnosis, let's go to some, <laughs> some nice. Place. Anyway, so back to back to the happy place of hypnosis. La la la. Yes. Go well, ahead. I think I th- I mean, nobody listens to my show. I think even my friends will tell me what a three hour episode. I'm not listening to that. <laughs> I'm going to tell them, well, well, we go into all of this. Nah, 
nobody's going <laughs> to listen. But at least I'm having fun. I'm I'm learning a lot. Um, I wanted to ask you. So yeah, I love the Betty Andreessen stuff and the Raymond Fowler stuff. Though I am just getting into it. Um, are you going to break my heart with the story you promised me? <laughs> no, no. Okay. So Ray, Ray Fowler. Yeah, I, I told you I had a Ray Fowler story, and he's yeah. an interesting guy to me uh, because now here's someone who did hypnosis, and yet he was one of the only people to publicly come out and denounce Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs and Laud us and uh, Carol Rainey mm-hmm. for bringing this to light. So I thought that was really commendable. But I think it was back in when I was in middle school, I did a uh, uh, I wrote a. Uh, science, you know, for science class, a paper on crop circles. And okay. he uh, lived in, in Massachusetts and I lived in Massachusetts. And there was an article about him. He had some sort of observatory that he would let kids and general public use on his property. So his phone number was public and I, I wanted to talk to him to interview him for this paper. Um, and so I called him up and uh, he actually answered the phone, which was shocking and it it turns out in in a nice synchronicity that he had just stepped off a plane that he was in the uk looking at crop circles himself and talked to me about this i can't remember what it is anymore operation i don't know mockingbird or whatever the hell it was something something where like they saw a ball of light uh, in the field um maybe creating this stuff i don't know and then the government swooped in and took the footage like this was all sort of happening while he was there and he had just Mm -hmm. stepped off a plane and this was all fresh in his mind. And here he is telling this, this, you know, eighth grader, (laughs) this stuff, (laughs) whatever I was at the time. And, uh, and then we got to talking and I, I think I told him, I must've told him my UFO experience. And then he said, um, you know, at the time I knew him obviously from the Andreasen books, but that was it. I just knew him as a researcher. And he said, you know, I think I asked him, have you ever had any experiences yourself? And he said, you know, this isn't something I talk about publicly and I'm just coming to grips with it. And it, you could hear in his voice, he wasn't good with this stuff, but he was willing to tell me about some of his own abduction experiences that he was just now realizing he's been an experiencer and that's what has informed his uh, interest in this all along. And I don't know, to this day, I just find that amazing. Like, I think he came out with that publicly years later. Yeah, I think in UFO Testament, his book. But I, and I think, I think it was in the his, 90s. Yeah. So I, when I hear people say things like, oh, Ray Fowler, you know, there are always people who say so-and-so is full of shit. Ray Fowler isn't full of shit. He told this middle school kid this in confidence because mm-hmm. we were both experiencers. And you could hear the real emotion in his voice that this was real and the fact that he was willing to do this for some kid i i don't know speaks volumes and the fact that he was willing to come out and talk about emma woods i mean i would love to talk well i can't now anyway of course but i would have loved to have talked to ray fowler okay so is has he passed away or not because because he published a book fairly recently i was under the assumption that he was dead but if he's alive great um I seem to remember calling him or trying to call him years ago and I, his son answered and Ray mm-hmm. wasn't, wasn't doing interviews at the time and he was in ill health. 
but I don't know. Okay. Oh, and he wasn't, he, yeah, he was done. Like at that point he was done being involved in UFO shit at all. And but yet a book came out, I think earlier this year or late last year, I, I bought it as soon as it came out. It's like, uh, I, I can't remember how what it's called. Something connections. We are holograms, like oh. alien abductions, uh, NDEs, OBEs, time lapses, and stuff like that. Well, maybe you can get him as an interview. <laughs> I'm a nobody, man. I would He'd rather maybe talk, he'll to talk to you. I, I think it would be very cool if he is still with us. That you re- rekindle that because he he told you uh, that story when you were an eighth grader. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> mm. Yeah, you're you're getting some inspirations thanks to me. <laughs> That's right. Well, I, I don't know wh- why I gravitate so much towards because I'm an atheist, and this is very religious stuff that he was uh, talking about, especially in the Andreas and stuff. But I don't know. There, there is some. It feels very genuine and authentic, and it's not. A negative. It's not scary. It's like a, a positive shamanic experience. Um, also, I love the idea that Betty, through these hypnosis sessions, was channeling some creativity and generating all of these drawings and illustrations. You know, yeah. um, and that this. I mean, even if it's all a confabulation and bullshit, I love all the mythos that she created and uh, how it was a part of her life. I mean, uh, she. I- she, she passed I, away earlier this year. I don't know if you heard. Yeah, I, I hate to sound like I had I hate to sound like, you know, every scientist debunker at the end of an episode of, you know, some UFO thing where they're like, but it, it doesn't matter because the magic of being alive is magic enough, isn't it, everyone? Um, but I really mm-hmm. think like even if even though I should say these hypnosis sessions aren't pulling out actual real coherent memories it is magical like there is still some we the things we take for granted about ourselves the ability to tell a story uh to make stuff up and have it be coherent on the spot like that even um through hypnosis or not even as a writer or whatever like just these things that we take for granted because we do them all the time or certain people do them all the time there's it's still magical and unsolved as to how it is we're doing that and where that's coming from because it's not enough to just say it's coming from your imagination. That's a placeholder from I don't know where it's coming from. I think when she was illustrating all of this uh, during the investigation of the first book, The Andreasen Affair, they showed an engineer all of her illustrations of the interior uh, and the rooms of the supposed UFO. And he said, if you match everything up, it really uh, matches up with a configuration of a potential crafts. So, I mean, even if it is, even if all of this is bullshit made up, whatever, it is so fascinating to me that she was able to channel into something and produce artistry, which matches up. So, um, she did have a paranormal experience, but not necessarily an alien experience. Right. Something. And also, know. like, you know, later can on, can I just the, tell you? Can I just tell okay. you, like, the one thing I remember from those books that stuck with me, besides, you know, going through the door to meet the one or whatever, was mm-hmm. uh, the idea that the aliens take their eyes from these frog-like creatures that have eyeballs on stems. Uh-huh. You know, 
and they sort of take <laughs> pluck those out and use them as their own eyes. I thought that was. Oh cute. man. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have to get to that. I'm reading phase two of the book. Oh shit. Spoiler, spoiler alert. No, no, it's okay. Um, I love, I love phase two. It's so wacky and it's full of high strangeness because the first book is essentially just alien abduction. Um, in the second book, constantly Ray Fowler writes like, I'm sick of this shit. I, I just want to give up on Betty and Trace and I don't want anything to do with this anymore because constantly it's just more weirdness and weirdness. She has a story when she was 12 years old and, uh, setting traps for animals in the forest. Uh, out of a hole in the ground emerged a gray who paralyzed her and was like um, telling her, why are you setting traps for animals? And uh, he took away her traps. When she came back to, she told uh, the team via hypnosis that she has this uh, feeling that she wants to be one with nature. Well, there you go. I mean, (laughs) wherever that comes from, it certainly is. That is a through line of this. And why would aliens care whether we blow up the earth, whether there's an ice age, whether we eat enough, unless, you know, eat too much unless sugar. they are whatever. from earth. <laughs> well, unless they're from earth or they're so connected with us that they need us to survive. Or, well, later you know, on, later important. on, you know that the Betty and Dresden abductions uh, were more astral, uh, more uh, spiritual. They were abducting her spiritually, not physically. Yeah. Good for her. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, good for her. I, I totally approve of everything, even if it is a fantasy universe. It made her happy and it made her life better. It was not something negative. Yeah. There's something to be said for that. Okay, uh, so your your uh, personal experiences, do you perceive them as something positive or negative? Uh, It depends. I mean... I, that experience that I talked about before, um, that was so terrifying at the time that, that it really shakes me and makes me question all of this positivity spin that I put on it, honestly. <laughs> like, maybe it just really is evil aliens. Like, that's kind of okay, that, where you are. At the, it, it, like, takes a so, while to come back to, like, yeah. rational thought, you know? So at the start, when I was asking you, like you're, you've spent a whole decade just telling the story over and over again, I was not insinuating that you made up the story. I was insinuating that maybe because you are repeating it, you are uh, shifting uh, small details or uh, maybe the overarching mood of the story or just changing it in a way that it does not reflect very accurately maybe the original experience. Well, I think the change is the not any of the details of the story, but the focus. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if if not for George Hansen, I, I and Jeff Ritzman, frankly, I think I would be stuck with is this demonic, is this evil, or whatever. But because I probably wouldn't have made the connection of the impossibility and the jokester trickster aspect of like, right, the virginity thing. You know, like, what are the odds? <laughs> this can't possibly be. That's changing. And also the really examining closely, putting a microscope to it and saying like, okay, there's a difference between what they're emoting and what I'm feeling. And and in rationally picking that apart is where uh, is where I go with it now. 
But if I didn't go that way with it, I would be stuck with a really traumatizing experience that just has a surface level that I would maybe just assume was the case, you know? So I don't focus so much on the fact that it terrorized me so so much as the fact that the terror seems to be disconnected from what's actually happening. So essentially, a lot of experiencers find themselves kind of perpetually wallowing in the mud of the terror instead of trying to piece together the positivity of the whole thing. Well, I wouldn't even say positivity, but just the the fact that the surface that that's a, as awful as it is to say that that's a surface level to a deeper thing going on because it feels mm-hmm. like the whole the totality of what's going on and it's awful. But uh, it is yeah, ne- necessary for you to lose your ego. In a way. Right. Well, this all gets to like, of course, if anything that touches you from beyond uh, instantly wakes you up to the fact that you're that that there is a beyond and you're not in control. And so like like in the snap of a finger, all of all of our sense of reality is gone. Right. Like everything that mm-hmm. we built up, you are gone, but not in the spiritual way because you're still there. It's just that you are confronted with with the, the shocking lie of you in a sense, uh, mm-hmm. of everything that you've built up, because everything that you've built up about yourself is a reaction essentially to the fear of death. And here's death. <laughs> now comes death in a person, you know, in a personage, in a alien. But what do you think of people who kind of throughout life uh, condition themselves to uh gradually lose their ego and try to become one without paranormal experiences are they then able to have paranormal experiences i'm talking about myself because i i am i'm a person who has shed away his ego gradually throughout life um well, i am already aware that you know the universe is much greater than me and that my consciousness may not be my own. So am I even able to have a paranormal experience? And is paranormal, is the paranormal just there to kind of um, sabotage the walls other people built around themselves? That's a good question. I It, it may be. Uh, there may be a few things going on. It may be that. And there may also be this larger invisible ecology of stuff, you know, and that we confuse the two. Who knows? But I think like when you say that you've shed your ego, um, I think we're talking about two different things. You may have shed your arrogance, but your Mm -hmm. sense of self, you're still you. I'm talking to you right now. Mm -hmm. So you may not be arrogant and you may be even more interconnecting with nature Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to, you know, this rugged individualism crap that we've got in this country. Um, But you're still you. And you have to die. And it's not something that you can do. We're not talking suicide and we're not talking. Yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even even spiritually, there's there's no meditation for it. It's really understanding so deeply that you're still there. And that is the impediment to understanding if there's something beyond you. Yeah, but I moment, am the brain I am stops you opening up. uh I don't want to say spiritually, but logically, and maybe that that's the difference because I'm going through this from a logical perspective, but I'm opening myself up to the idea that I am not just myself, but I am many different entities and I am essentially an extension of the overarching consciousness and the whole universe. I am a molecule of reality and 
molecules are there to work together to uh, create the fabric of the universe. So I yeah. am myself, but I am also other different things that overlay and exist within the same entity. Right. And when that person shuts up, there's something else that takes place. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe yeah. I'll have a, <laughs> maybe I'm going to have a Kundalini awakening one day. I mean, it's possible because you're asking, like, is it possible for you to have, you know, some sort of, and the answer is, yeah, I mean, sure. It depends on what you're talking about, what, what sort of experience you would have, but if the ultimate wake up thing is out of you. Is it possible for somebody to be an experiencer later in life if they did not throughout their childhood, uh, touch the veil, have these high strangeness experiences? I mean, I would think so. Um... Because it seems a lot of experiencers actually, uh, all of it started in childhoods. Maybe, but like the, so the Kundalini and the spiritual stuff is different than this stuff, but there's overlapping phenomena. So for me, there were periods of time where I would have like uh, clear audio or visual sort of remote viewing type things, you know, like periods of time where these things would happen. So you would call that psychic phenomena, right? So that type of thing yeah. you can have, I think, at any point. You could probably step into a haunted place and have a haunted experience at any point, I would think. Um, I think you can. I mean, you know, it it's weird. It's like the New Age stuff shares the same language with depth. And that's the unfortunate part because it makes it all look like shallow garbage. But there is something to you know, if you reach out to it, not in a CE5 way, not mm-hmm. in a shining light of the sky way, or even a meditating because you want it way, but engaging the question alone with yourself in a Jungian way, perhaps, so deeply that you become uh, the deep searcher, not the shallow searcher, then yeah, I think there's something out of, you know, the impersonal collective even that can come up and and interact with you. I I don't see why not. The question is, why do we want that? As opposed to, um, don't we want to be wholly us? Don't we want to be the whole expression of a human being before we ever engage with that stuff? Isn't, you know, or else there's always going to be a context that's missing that's leading us to keep engaging with it in like an addictive way, like a, you know, an addicted seeker kind of way. Okay, so there is this overarching idea that the paranormal is related to death. Now, uh-huh. would this be uh, just, uh, you know, physical death of somebody dying? Or is it uh, rather the death of oneself? Um, I think both. Okay, I mean, because I- if if you're seeking the paranormal, aren't you essentially seeking something that will eventually lead to your death? Um, you may be, but you don't, I I think all of what we're doing is, well, I think all of what we're doing is seeking those things specifically not to die. Uh, even those things that should lead to our, our egoic death or even physical death. Um, but are people who are, Mm -hmm. are people who are touched by the paranormal actually touched by death? Are they essentially doomed? Well, I think, I don't know about doomed. I think that's where the fear comes from. Again, it touches you in the way that, that your sense of self is in, is shocked 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so on that level, yes. But I also think that what we're talking about is, you know, there's an underbelly of the universe. There is an underworld that is the death realm, which all of this shit exists in. And we call it archetypes and we call it imaginal and, and all these other names, but we could also call it a death realm if you want. Um, I mean, it's just sort of, uh, I don't know, a place of formless awarenesses yeah. uh, that can come up through us and, you know, sure. I mean, that that is also touching death in a way. So I have been binging through your Paratopia show because you have been posting it now okay. after a decade because of uh, Jeff Rispin's, uh passing away. And constantly throughout the show, he would bring up either that he has troubles with his stomach or when he would have an experience that, let's say, he would feel the adrenaline in his stomach and stuff like that. And in the end, didn't he pass away from stomach cancer? Uh, I just just found that synchronous. Okay, so I I thought it was a very weird synchronicity. It it is what he passed away from. Well, first of all, I don't know how much I want to talk about this because I don't know what his personal sensitivity to his family, but mm-hmm. it, it was not stomach cancer. It was most likely uh, ulcer related. Okay. And something that could have been prevented had he taken care of it, which is okay. the most fucking frustrating thing. Um, okay. So ju- just to tell you, like, this is not, uh, I heard this on another podcast. Somebody said that it may have been some kind of undiagnosed stomach cancer or something. Well, they thought that's what it was, but his family yeah. didn't want him to, they didn't want to deal with that of like having okay, him okay. examined like okay, that. Okay, I, I understand that. But uh, they think that the most likely thing is actually not necessarily, well, I mean, I don't know, is an ulcer stomach cancer? I don't know. But not necessarily cancer, just something that he let go for too long. But yes, related, I mean, yeah. And I think even when he started having sit-down chats with the shrouded man, didn't mm-hmm. he also tell Jeff to stop eating certain foods like sugary foods and all this? Yeah. Like, yeah, there's always been this thing uh, in, of, of that in his paranormal shenanigans, uh, sort of a wake up call to, you know, take care of himself in that way. Something to do with his stomach. And, you know, he drank uh, sodas. I don't know if it's Pepsi or Coke, but one of the two, you know, just would hammer. Yeah, I hear, I hear that throughout your, your episodes. He's constantly bringing that up, either stomach issues, either that he would feel fear through his stomach. That when he took mushrooms one time, uh, he had such a stomach ache. Um, then that he went on some kind of diet, uh, eating oatmeal because he was usually drinking a lot or eating too much sugary food. And it was just some kind of very eerie synchronicity that was going on and on because I was aware that he passed away due to a stomach issue. Yeah. Correct. So I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking if maybe the paranormal is related to that. And I don't know if, if that's offensive of me to say, I, no, I was I just don't, interested. I don't think that's offensive. Um, yeah. I just don't know how much I can talk about his, you know, whatever, yeah. I don't know, is this medical history? I don't know, just because I'm sensitive to what his family yeah. wants out there and not. Um, also, to comment, like, I think it's a beautiful thing what you're doing now with Peritopia as an homage to him, because I now, uh, I never got the opportunity to talk with him or even uh, know of him until his passing. So 
I, I as a newcomer, am able to kind of sift through these audio photographs that you both co-created, and I am able to learn and uh, experience new things. Well, I'm glad via, that you via are. Yeah, his words. Yeah, I'm glad that you are, and and uh, you know, I I don't know. I I just think it's again, it's sad that that it's still relevant in in a certain sense, um, but it also keeps it mm-hmm. magical because <laughs> I think. I I don't think there are shows doing what we did, you know, to like experiencers who are willing to talk about it as deeply as we did and who are able to articulate it like that. Uh, I don't think there are shows like that, unfortunately. So I'm glad that it's back in the world because something's got to be. And it still has an impact. Like two days ago, the, the Emma Woods thing blew up again. Um, also, I listened to Where Did the Road Go? Constantly, Soraya mentions uh, Jeff Rutzman. So yeah. the impact is still there. And I think it's a beautiful thing. I have this idea like we should not be uh, afraid of death because we are able to establish immortality by imprinting our essence into other people by inspiring them, you know, and then it just moves from person to person. And what we do in our life, uh, uh, even if we die and leave this realm, at least it's still left here within the people. Right. Yeah, this is true. Although that doesn't help when you're on your deathbed and you realize, uh oh, I don't know if I'm ending right now or not. <laughs> yeah, it's something unfortunately all you're of us will, will come face to face with. Yes, but you can do it right now before you actually physically die. That's the beauty of it. It's just nobody does. Instead, yeah. they seek it forever and ever, not realizing that that seeker is in the way of it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so to end this episode oh, <laughs> on a God. more po- positive <laughs> note, uh, where can people find you so they may be able to sue you and not sue me? Uh, that's uh, vook at gmail.com. You can write to me. <laughs> so, um, you can find me at ourundoing.com. I guess that's uh, there's a contact form there. So come on by, <laughs> but don't sue me. <laughs> also uh, people like if you are interested in the Paratopia podcast and I urge you to go listen to it it has uh, a, a, a very long episodes just like what I'm doing now I mean this is kind of an homage uh, but <laughs> yeah uh, it is a, a miraculous show that still is very relevant today even if it's a decade old and uh, Jeremy here has been reposting it every single week um if you're interested in the emma woods stuff i will link the uh, erica luke's episode in the episode description and also are are, are the emma woods related episodes of peritopia going up in the next weeks i think they should be yeah um yeah. i haven't looked so i don't know but yes yeah, I think they I think are now- going to be the next ones, next ones in the timeline. So if anybody is interested um, how this scandal blew up and uh, everything that Jeff and Jeremy uh, did relating to the incident and how they helped, uh, stay tuned for those episodes then. Well, and I should say, so paratopia.net, you can also get there through ourundoing.com. These are both mm-hmm. r- the same website. But if you're looking specific, and so the podcast publishes there weekly, but also... If you're just looking for like the RSS feed or the whatever Apple podcasts or whatever it is you use, um, it's under our undoing radio. So yeah. our undoing radio is the flagship show. And then every Friday also is Paratopia is released on that same feed. Yeah. 
Okay, man. Thank you so much. I I love this discussion. I think I'm not gonna edit anything out. Um, just put oh, a three-hour episode um, because it, it it was an experience that we co-created. It's an audio photograph, as I well, want to say. I did hypnotize you, so great. It oh. worked out. <laughs> Wait till you listen back and hear what you said. It's incredible. Okay, as long as uh, as long as no uh, hybrids will come knocking on my door. <laughs> No, but your underwear is headed to my house right now, so. Oh, <laughs> dude, do I need to cut that out now? <laughs> no. But see, it's okay to make jokes that are about how awful he is. It's when okay. you're insulting her that's the problem. No, that's no. Insulting. Okay, so w- let's end the episode with this. Um, uh, when I joined Twitter, I joined just to make fun of people and to troll the UFO community. And I was making memes of uh, David Jacobs, like the alien meme, you know, the alien guy, but his face of David Jacobs. And instead of aliens, it says panties or something like that. Um, The Erica Luke's show with Emma Woods and Jack Brewer came out two days ago. And Jack Brewer acknowledged people who are making memes of David Jacobs. Um, and how it may be, you know, disrespectful. And asked Emma Woods about her opinion on that. And uh, I thought, man, I'm fucked. Like, I, I even sent Jack Brewer a few of those memes personally. So I think, mm-hmm. I'm thinking, wow, I instigated this. I, I know I'm not the only one, but, you know, I feel shitty. And Emma Woods said, like, she's not offended and she's not angry. And she knows that it's coming from the right place, that it's, an expression of criticism towards David. It's not something against her, but right. I, I was dumbfounded with her um, response because usually you'd think somebody's going to be angry and say, Oh, those people, how can they do th- stuff like that? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, wow, this is a very nice and very decent person. Um, and I sent Jack Brewer today uh, a, tw- a tweet like uh, sharing all love uh, with you and Emma and for the bravery and thank you guys for acknowledging how problematic it is to make these jokes. So I'm putting it out there that, yeah, uh, we in the UFO fanboy communities think it's all fun and games when making memes and jokes. But in the end, when you hear what the witness has to say, it's really not fun. Um you can uh, caricaturize David Jacobs and similar people and think of them as buffoons, but in the end, they are predators and they are doing something that's very, very bad. Well, that's well said, and I wish everyone had the self-awareness that you do in this field. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's what I think of when saying losing my ego. I want to learn. I'm in this not for the ego, but for the learning experience. And in order to learn, you need to change. You can't learn if, if nothing changes within you. This is true. Yeah. So until next time, if you ever want to speak with me again. Um, of course. But- but maybe people will be hearing us on another show. Ooh, foreshadowing. Maybe, but let's not say too much. Yeah, Shh, yeah. Keep it under your head. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Bye.